Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing that's just feeding your greed. Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it. Hello, simpletons. You're listening to the Minimalist's Private Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn. And I'm Ryan Nicodemus. And together, we are the Minimalists. Oh, what a show we have for you today. We've got Malabama in the studio. Hi, everybody. TK Coleman. What it is. Oh, we got the rest of our team here as well. And we have Nick and Trinity, a special studio audience yeah. here. Yeah. Yeah. See around here, we applaud our audience. <laughs> Congratulations on their recent marriage. They're a happy, beautiful, oh, young, congrats. lovely couple. That's awesome. Are both of you from LA? Okay, cool. What about you, man? Where are you from? Midwest boy. All right, nice. cool. Awesome. He grew up cool. in Missouri. Yeah, awesome. So we sometimes we'll uh, we'll bring some friends in to watch the magic. Also, mm-hmm. shout out to our Patreon subscribers watching on the live stream. If you get the video version of the private podcast, uh, big thanks to all of our private podcast subscribers. Though you keep our podcast a hundred percent advertisement mm-hmm. free because advertisements suck. Yeah, they do. Before we get to our callers, Ryan. If people are watching the video version of this, they might notice something a little bit different. They might see, well, we had to unleash Ryan's lips. <laughs> These lips? Oh, wait. Out of, out of context, quote of the month. <laughs> <laughs> you mean these old things? <laughs> right now, I can't stand up. <laughs> Real mature. Real mature. <laughs> Introducing the Ryan Nicodemus Pouty Face Selfie Series. Oh a new calendar God. coming for 2023. Oh, man. We had to make an adjustment to the podcast. What we realized is when Danny takes a clip for TikTok or Instagram from the podcast, they were punishing us because you couldn't see our lips. We have one of the best sounding podcasts out there. Big thanks to post-production Peter and podcast Sean. And of course, we have... Professor Sean, Prof Sean here in the studio doing all the audio engineering. They make the podcast sound outstanding. But one of the things we've done because our show is primarily an audio show and then we have a video component as well is we were getting right up on the mics as it makes sense for a a audio program. Yeah, especially with these mics. Yes. Yeah. However, we've had we've had to make a few subtle adjustments, so it's still going to sound outstanding for you, but you can see our faces a little bit more yeah. now as well. By the way, this was prompted by one of our Patreon subscribers said, hey, can you do an episode where we see your whole face? And oh, wow. we had a conversation about this where it's like, well, yeah, we want you to see our face, but we just uh, we think everyone's going to be so turned on. They're not going to hear <laughs> the value from the podcast. So really, it was to save you all. <laughs> You're so benevolent. <laughs> Algorithms, man. It's such a weird thing. I would have never imagined that in a million years. And we found yeah. that this out this week because we did a live event, the Sunday Symposium, when we posted some clips onto Instagram from that. And you could see our lips there. And all mm-hmm. of a sudden, it was like, Everyone was engaging and sharing them. And you realize Mm. like the material itself, Mm. the content of those videos was Mm -hmm. not appreciably different from anything we talk about on the podcast. It was a slightly different setting, obviously, but we were being punished because Instagram and TikTok were thinking it was just a still image that was on Uh. or, or it was stock footage because you couldn't match the lips up with the 
um, the words that were appearing on the screen. Oh, wow. Well, the way you explain it to me, too, is it's kind of like this back and forth cat and mouse game, right? So Instagram says we want to incentivize people to just go with video. So people who still want to share like quotes, they'll make a video where there's just a picture of quotes, but there's motion so they can bypass that filter. Mm. Then IG comes back and says, oh, no, you don't. Now we're going to have face detection mm -hmm. so we can know yeah. if there's an actual face there. So people put a picture of themselves with a little motion. And so there's this back and forth, everybody adjusting to all these different changes. It's such a funny thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, and with us adjusting to it as well, without compromising what we're doing because we don't make this podcast for TikTok or for Instagram. But what we try yeah. to do is we take a few clips each week and share some of the highlights from the episode so that people will go and download or watch the actual episode mm -hmm. of the podcast. Yeah. It's, it sort of functions as a, a trailer in the way. Uh, anyway, we're going to dive into some questions. Let us know in the chat if you have any questions about clinging to books, because that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're talk about writing as well, writing habits, reading habits. We're going to talk about some overrated items. So drop your questions and comments in the chat. Alabama will be reading those throughout this episode. We can start with our callers. If you have a question or comment for the podcast, give us a call 406-219-7839 or email a voice memo to podcast at theminimalists.com and let us know that you're a private podcast subscriber so we can prioritize your message. Our first question today is from Ted in Canada. This is Ted from Canada. I was curious about your thoughts on the different writing methods. The methods being plotting, where you plot out everything before you write, pantsing, where you write by the seat of your pants and what you're feeling in the moment, and plantsing, which is a mixture of the two. What method do you use and why? Really, I think there is only one true writing method. It's four words that totally changed my life. Sit in the chair. So I teach a writing course. It's called How to Write Better. And the first week is called Sit in the Chair. It's really about building a writing habit. Mm. And so I don't care what method you use. And we can talk about both of those, the plotting versus pantsing. I, I, I like that framing. But ultimately, it's about actually sitting down and writing. Mm. Mm. Ryan knows this, but for many years throughout my 20s, I wrote sporadically. Mm -hmm. I was an aspiring writer. I did a whole lot of aspiring, but not a whole lot of writing. And that's really the problem. I think a lot of people come to How to Write Better, the class itself, because they are aspiring to write. They yeah. actually want to write, but they're afraid. They are worried. They can't call themselves a writer. Mm. And it's true. You are a writer as soon as you're writing something, right? Yeah. And if you're writing regularly, then you're a writer. And we're all writers now, to some extent. We all, in fact, we are in the most literate time in human history. Mm. There was a time just one or two generations ago where our parents or grandparents, the last time they would write a full paragraph quite often was at age 18 in their oh, senior wow. year of high school. Wow. And they left high school mm. and they did some sort of trade. They built cabinets like my brother does, or they... Um, took a sales job or whatever it might be, and they stopped writing regularly. Mm -hmm. We're writing all the time now. Yeah. Text messages and Instagram posts and blog posts and tweets and Facebook updates. Yeah. We are all writers. Don't forget about now. all those emails. Oh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All the emails. And, and so we are all writers now. 
But what we're talking about here, and I think this is what Ted is talking about ultimately, is sitting down and writing creatively. And the thing I talk to my students about is writing involves sitting in the chair. I got these Mm. four words from a guy named Donald Ray Pollock. He's a very talented novelist. He wrote a great book called The Devil All the Time. He's from Chillicothe, Ohio. And I had lunch with him. I sent him a random email, cold called him essentially, Mm -hmm. and asked him to have lunch. He said, yes. We went to a Thai restaurant in Chillicothe. He had steak. (laughs) (laughs) How was it? How was the Thai place in Chillicothe? I I have to ask. It wasn't Thai nine like Dayton, Ohio. Of course not. No. No, It was fine. Okay. Yeah. But the four words that I got from him, I said, you know, because he has this amazing, really inspirational story. Mm. Do you know about Donald Ray Pollock? I don't. So talented novelist, but at age 55, he's working at the paper mill in Chillicothe. The only big business in Chillicothe is the Mead paper mill there. It's a whole town, a whole city that's built around this paper mill. And he was working there until age 55. And he'd always read fiction, but he was an aspiring writer. He never sat down and actually did the writing. And he went and talked to his wife and said, hey, I'm really getting up there. I'm 55 now. I've never given this a shot. I read every day. I'm engrossed by literary fiction, but I don't write. I really want to give this a shot. At 55? At at age 55. That's awesome. That is like, you're never, you know, you're never too old and it's never too late. Like, that's a great example of that. Yes. And what his wife said is, well, why don't you give it two years? He left the paper mill. He set up a little desk in his attic. And he started writing and writing. He wrote this beautiful short story collection called Knock'em Stiff. It's about a town, actual town in Ohio called Knock'em Stiff. And, and uh, what a beautiful set of stories. And he gave, said, I'll give myself two years. If it doesn't work out, I'll go back to the paper mill. Everything will be fine. We've saved up enough money that I can make this happen. I can live on a shoestring budget. Real minimalist here, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And I can sit down every day. And I said, well, how did you do it? He said, well... You just sit in the chair. And what I learned in that moment was it's not about word count. It's not about which method I use. Mm. It's not about page count. It's about sitting down every day and putting the words on the page. Mm. Now, why isn't it about word count? One thing I talk to my writing students about is, well, some of my best writing days are negative 2,000 words. Because I wrote 10,000 words last week, and now it's about how do I trim that down? How do I, how do I pan for gold? We do a whole week in how to write better about um, the editing process, yeah. because good writing is rewriting as well. Mm. And so that's why I don't worry about mm. word count. I don't worry about these things that are overwhelming. The only count I worry about is am I willing to sit down for at least an hour a day and put the words on the page? And soon an hour turns into two hours, two hours turns into three. Beyond three hours, most of the time for most people tends to be a bit excessive and you begin to lose some creativity. So that sweet spot is somewhere between one to three hours. Mm. And so plotting versus pantsing, uh, it doesn't really matter to me. I'm more of a pantser. Sit down and see what comes to me, right? Yeah. I don't really believe in writer's block anymore as a result of that. There are good days and bad days. There's days where I want to put my head through a wall. Maybe that's what people mean by writer's block. But if I know I just sit there, no distractions. And that's what Donald Ray Pollock taught me. You don't sit there and, well, I'm going to just browse Etsy real quick, right? Oh, let me uh, do some e- e- eBay shopping. Let me, uh, you know what? I forgot I have to fold mm. the laundry. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. 
No distractions, no Wi-Fi, no chores, no doing the dishes. Quite often, this is why renting some sort of external space allows you to go there, a co-working space where you have a desk for 100 or 200 bucks a month. Mm-hmm. It allows you to go somewhere where you know you're only writing at that location. You don't have access to anything else. It is a yeah. signifier of actually doing the work. I know that. I think that's why it's so cliche for people to go to a coffee shop and write. I mean, yeah. I know that that is like, I mean, it's memed at this point, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it makes sense. They go to a coffee shop because they don't have to worry about anything except like what's in front of them yeah. and their cup of coffee. Yeah. Are, are you a pantser or are you a plotter, TK? I've never thought about it. <laughs> never thought about it a day of my life. It, 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 that would be like introducing labels that refer to the kind of talker that one is yeah. and asking me which one applies. There might be one that applies. I just don't know what it is. Yeah. When I have something to say, I simply say it, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I think about this, uh, the story of this guy who he was praying for the uh, winning lottery ticket and he prayed every single day for like 10 days straight. And, uh, and one day God finally speaks back and God says, look, I'm not making any promises, but man, if you want me to help you win the lotto, you at least got to buy a ticket. <laughs> and this guy was confusing the difference between praying the lotto and playing the lotto. <laughs> and sometimes we do that when it comes to our acts of creativity. We, mm. we wish the book, but you can't wish the book into existence. You've got to write the book. But we fall into what Robert Fritz calls the identity trap, where we think we have to have reasons to believe that we are something or that we can prove we are something before we just do something. Mm-hmm. So am I a writer? Am I an artist? <laughs> am I a creator? But Seth Godin says there's no such thing as talker's block because we don't trip ourselves up by mm. asking, you know, am I a talker? Mm. Am I a speaker? Am I worthy to be called? A th-? No, you got something to say. You just say it without worrying about does my identity conform to this label? Writing is not an ontological thing. It's a pragmatic thing. You become a writer when you show up and you say what you have to say. And so for me, when it comes to questions of methodology, I see writing as an act of communication. Successful communication has taken place when the goal of the communicator has been achieved. Doesn't matter how good I feel about the way the words came out. Doesn't Mm -hmm. matter how bad I feel. Why did I set out to communicate? Did I get a yes on that? If so, successful communication has taken place. It doesn't matter what label the world gives me. You guys can figure out if I'm a writer. I'm just here to show up and say what I got to say. Yeah. Yeah. Regardless of the vehicle. That's right. Was it uh, Hemingway or was it Steinbeck who uh, they were asked, um, do you, uh, do you, do you write only when you're inspired? Was it Hemingway? Yeah. Yeah. I think it was Steinbeck, but Steinbeck, yeah. it's, 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 tr- it's attributed to a bunch of people, uh, okay. but I, I, I think it's probably Steinbeck. And they said, do you write when you're inspired? He goes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. He says, yeah, I write only when I'm inspired and I make sure that every morning at 8 a.m. I'm inspired. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. And that's really what sitting in the chair is about. It's not about being a writer. It's about writing, Mm -hmm. turning that noun into a verb because the verb is much more important here. They often say that some writers prefer to have written, but I actually prefer the writing process itself. Some of my greatest joys in life occur while writing. Mm. You get into that, what some people call the flow state or what Kapil Gupta might call the state of no mind, mm. because you're, which is a little ironic yeah. because you are doing a type of thinking, but yeah. it's so 
heavily focused thinking Mm -hmm. when you're writing, that everything else fades away. It's not rumination. It's not the meandering mind worrying about this and then this and then this and then this. It's just focused right there on the page. You face that blinking line on the page. And that's a really beautiful Mm. exercise. To me, that's the the real meditation Mm. is putting the words on the page. Mm. We got another question here. This one is from Kate, also in Canada. My name is Kate and I'm from Canada. What makes a good beta reader? I'm currently beta reading a classmate's memoir and I want to help as much as I can. I understand that beta reading is not just about assisting with grammar and sentence structure, but also about helping the writer understand and navigate the reader's interpretation. Have you had people beta read your work before? And if so, what did they do that you found most helpful? I'd love to hear your thoughts and any suggestions you may have. This is a very thoughtful question. Yes, we've had a lot of beta readers read our works before they become published, right? Mm -hmm. And this is even true with our blog posts. We have Podcast Sean and Professor Sean are two of the best editors that I know. Mm -hmm. And it's really helpful to have a clean pair of eyes because a shift in perspective often strengthens your perspectives in a way. It gives you a broader base. Now, what makes a good beta reader? It depends on what the writer wants from mm. the beta reading. Yeah. Sometimes mm. the writer may simply <laughs> want you to check for typos, grammar mm. errors, mm-hmm. uh, sentence structure, etc. Yeah. Right? Some of the basics. The mechanics of it. Yes. Yeah. And then other writers might want a line editor to literally go through the entire thing and make suggestions because maybe they are looking to flesh out the story more. They want to see what resonates with you as Mm. a reader. It depends on what kind of reader you are as well, but also what the writer, him or herself, is looking for from their readers. I was reading the Paris Review recently. There was this interview with Helen Garner. She's this Australian novelist, and she had this great line. She said, I wrote it down here, a story is a chunk of life with a bend in it. TK, mm. I remember ah, we, were, awesome. we were at this um, Sunday symposium and this woman said she just moved to L.A. She was really struggling. She went on a date with a guy and mm-hmm. her credit card got stolen on the first date. Her first experience moving to oh, Los Angeles from a yeah. new country. And her credit card didn't just get stolen on the first date. It got stolen by the guy she was on the first date with. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was layers to that story. Yeah. yeah. And, and I love what you said to her. You talked to her about, wow, that sounds like a story that I would like to read. Mm. So what is yeah. that? That is a life with a bend in it. Because mm. if we're just talking about something that happens in sequence, yeah. that's not generally compelling to most people. Who's the the guy from Sweden who would challenge me on that? Knafsgaard? Yeah. Carl Ove Knafsgaard? Carl Ove Yeah, he, he wrote the six-part series, which is very much a sort of this thing happened, then this thing happened, and then I put the book on the table. It's so compelling. It's compelling in a different way because it's meditative. Mm. But if the average person tries to do that, it's the same way if the average person tries to write like David Foster Wallace. It looks... uh, Weird. Because David Foster Wallace has these maximalist sentences that go on for pages, but they all track really well syntactically and Mm. grammatically. And and when the average person tries to do it, it just looks like a bunch of 
jargon, nonsense, nattering that goes onto a page, right? Is, is that the dude that wrote uh, Struggles? Yeah, My yeah. Struggle. My yeah. Struggle, yeah. yeah. That's a, yeah, that's a, a good one. six-volume series. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, and, but if you set that aside, what you're really looking for is the bend that happens in a life, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's two types of writing. There's communicative writing and there's expressive writing. And if you're just trying to communicate something, that's like a, a calculus textbook mm -hmm. or some sort of textbook. It's merely communicating. It doesn't express much. And then there's extreme expression. It's just a, a crazy person yelling at you on a train somewhere or yelling at a wall on a train. Mm -hmm. That doesn't even require an audience. But it's beautiful when the storytelling bends both together, the mm. communication and the expression and what happens then? It leaves an impression on the reader. Yeah. So a reader, a good beta reader, is really about the impression that you get from the writing. And so if you can give that sort of feedback, not you should specifically change this, mm. but what are your impressions as a reader? Yes, you can provide grammatical and sentence structure feedback to the writer. But if you can show them the impressions that story made on you, mm -hmm. that is really, really helpful for someone who's looking to improve their storytelling. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good. You know, I think of it in terms of leading with personality rather than prescription. Sometimes when, when we're given a job to do or we have an opportunity, the first thing we do is we run to people with more experience and we say, hey, give me the prescription. Right. What, what, what do I need to know for, for giving a great presentation or being a yeah. good beta reader? Give me the how-to. Yeah. yeah. But, but you got to remember, hey, they chose you for a reason. So don't forget to bring yourself with you, mm -hmm. right? You have a unique set of sensitivities, a unique set of interests and so on. And what you read or what you deliver is going to land on you in a different way. And so bring that. That's the most valuable thing, because if someone's saying, hey, I want you to be the beta reader for this book, they're trying to get outside of their own mind. Mm. They're trying to get outside of their own heart and see their work through the eyes of someone else. So give them your eyes. Mm -hmm. Lead with personality, not just prescription. The second thing I would say, though, when I was in college, I was in a play and uh, there was a scene that took place in the library and I was the guy in the background cleaning in the library, but I didn't have dialogue. There were two people center stage talking and I decided that I wanted to be what I thought was a brilliant actor and just be super creative in the background. I'm like, man, I'm going to have the audience really respecting my acting skills with the way I clean these tables. And so I'm tossing up the rack like <laughs> I'm a bartender cleaning behind my back. Yeah, I was, <laughs> I was on it. And so the director pulled me aside one day and says, hey, look, I love the effort, but what's happening is People are looking at you clean in the background and all the little magic tricks you're trying to do. Mm -hmm. And they're not hearing the words of the two people center stage that are trying to have dialogue. Brilliance is only brilliance when it supports a vision that is mm -hmm. larger than your own individual aims. And so if you're going to do work for someone, it's not just about how brilliant you feel about the work you're doing. It's also about the person who hired you and what their vision is and asking them, what does success mean to you? Why did you choose me? And then combining yeah. your knowledge of that with what makes you unique and you bring those two things together and you can create value for someone else in a way that only you can do. So what I'm hearing y'all say is um, she really shouldn't be asking us as much as she should be asking the author what they want uh, from this beta reading. And, and also understanding what you can provide to yeah. the author as well, yeah. right? Because there are some people whose strengths, like I'm thinking of podcast Sean, for example, mm -hmm. he's so talented 
as a copy editor. Yes. And so I really, I mean, I lean on him heavily. For to, M dashes, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he has a storage locker full of M dashes. <laughs> He's just trying to get rid of them. Yeah. All he, M dashes must go. <laughs> it's like the Matrix. Josh shows up. Yeah. I need more M dashes. <laughs> lots and lots of M dashes. Yeah, yeah, like, just, <laughs> no, it's more like the Matrix when I'm dodging all the M dashes oh, yeah. he's throwing at me oh, in slow motion. Yeah. So you rely on him heavily. Yeah, and yeah. then with someone like Professor Sean, I'll mm. I'll rely on him more for line editing to make suggestions, and and so it's good to have a mix of beta readers. Oh yeah, or, or people who because a clean pair of eyes can see what I can't see, mm. but multiple clean pairs of eyes give all of these different perspectives to the story mm-hmm. that I couldn't see on my own. I'm like, oh, I can't believe I didn't see that. Or I didn't see this. Mm-hmm. And even typos, I'm like, I read this thing a thousand times. It shouldn't have a typo, but of course it will, mm-hmm. right? Until we go through the full editing process. Yeah. One of the weeks in, in the writing class I teach, we, we talk about publishing your work and getting beta readers and other people involved in the process and treating it like uh, it is a professional thing. But at first, it starts with a whole bunch of crappy first drafts, getting the words on the page, reshaping those words, and then eventually when you're ready. I wouldn't share it too soon, by the way. And you can tell the writer that if they're sharing it a little bit too soon, you can let them know like, hey, I would go back and refine this first before you start sharing it with more beta readers, because yeah. I think they will get you will get the most value if you bring this to yeah. me when it is ready to be read. Yeah. Let's move on to some social media questions here. You can follow The Minimalists on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook and Twitter at The Minimalists. We have a question from YouTube. Katmandu says, why do people hold on to books that they'll never read again? I Hmm. helped my sister move from a two-bedroom cottage into a one-bedroom duplex, and she insisted on taking boxes and boxes of books with her. Now she has to rent a storage locker for all the overflow. Oh, isn't a storage Hmm. locker just a purgatory for stuff? Yes, (laughs) it is. I was (laughs) was thinking the best storage locker for books, though, might be like the library. Oh, (laughs) oh. Hey, tweet that. Yeah, right. <laughs> the best storage facility for books is the library. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. It, isn't that nice, too? Because then you can, obviously, you can donate books anywhere if mm-hmm. you're no longer using them. But the fundamental aspect of this question is why do people cling to books mm-hmm. that they will never read or that they will never read again? Coming up later on the private podcast, uh, we're doing the home tour segment. And I took a photo of my office and you get to see my book collection. You get to see every book that I own. And one of the things that I do is I limit the amount of books I can bring into my home Mm. because I have just one bookshelf. And anytime I want to bring a new book into my home, what happens? I have to remove a book from that shelf because Mm. I just don't have the space for it. And What happens is when we hold on to books because we have the space for them. Mm -hmm. If we have the space for them, we feel compelled to then fill up the space with more and more books. Mm -hmm. The only reason I hold on to books now is, A, if it's on my reading list and I'm going to read it in the not-too-distant future, so ideally within the next 90 days, Mm -hmm. or if it's a book that I regularly reference. So... My favorite author is David Foster Wallace. I often go and 
I will reference a book of his. I'll read a chapter from one of his books that I've read a bunch of times. So I keep those books because I actually use them. Of course, I have some writing books as well that I reference for my How to Write Better writing class. Mm-hmm. And the, these are like textbooks that I'll use for grammar or for parts of speech, especially if I'm teaching lessons on, on the How to Write Better YouTube channel. I'll mm-hmm. use these books so I can teach these lessons because I'm not a grammarian. I'm not a lexicographer, but I don't need to be. If I have just a small select group of resources, I can mm-hmm. go back to time and time again. However, we lie to ourselves. Hmm. I tell myself, I will read that book someday. So I better hold on to it just in case. Yeah. And that's a trap. Just yes. in case is always a trap, mm. especially <clears throat> with books, because oh, yeah. you can tell yourself a story. I'm going to read that someday, but then someday never arrives. And the only thing that arrives is another bookshelf because I need somewhere to put all of these books that I'm never going to read. One last thing I'll say before I became a minimalist. I had about 2,000 books, some of which I actually read. (laughs) Most of them I hadn't. Now, why did I have them? Why every time I would go to a bookstore, I'd buy a stack of books Mm -hmm. because, oh, this one looks interesting. This one looks interesting. This one looks interesting. Sound familiar? Yeah. Mm. It happens, right? Because your intention is to read the book. Right. Of course. I want to read this. But what what was the other part of my intention? I want to look smart. Oh, yeah. And how smart will I look if you come into my house and I've got a giant bookshelf full of all of these impressive books. Well, look how impressive I am as a person. No, it's far more impressive to stop clinging, to let go. You know what would look really impressive if you just had a bookshelf and all it had had was Infinite Jest on there <laughs> by David Foster Wallace. Well, because, that book's on a lot of shelves, but very few people I've met have exactly. ever read it. Yeah, but it's yeah, funny because people like keep, keep it on their shelves though because it is one of those books that's like, um, you know, uh, very different from other works, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. very hard to understand, but it's looked at as like a, um, you know, you're an intellectual if you can get through uh, Infinite Jest. I remember Josh was getting rid of a copy one time and I'm like, oh, I'm going to try and do it. He's like, don't, man, don't do it. He's like, you're not ready. You're not ready, man. <laughs> yeah, it's one of my favorite books. I'd never recommend it to anyone. Yeah. yeah. I certainly wouldn't batter someone by by buying it as a gift for them either mm-hmm. it, it looks like a phone book and the, it's a million words so it's a it's a is it a legit book. million words yeah oh yeah. wow man yeah your, your average a, book's about sixty thousand words by the way yeah. so no it's a very thick dense book for sure for sure several hundred pages of end notes alone you know i find on my shelf like half the books i have on there which are in the home tour i did like a couple of weeks ago yeah yeah um they are our um, foreign translations mm. of our other books. Yeah. And that's like the one thing that um, I probably do collect a little bit because mm. like I love the different styles that the different countries go with. Yeah. Mm. Um, but again, I have like my container of here are the books that, you know, here's the amount of books I'm, I'm allowed to keep. It's uh, the bookshelf that I got off of you. Mm-hmm. I can even fit a couple board games on there because um, I don't have that many books. But yeah, half of those books I have, though, are definitely like the foreign translations of our book. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so, TK, it's not wrong to own books. <laughs> Is that is that like narcissistic of me to like <laughs> to keep those books? No, I keep one. I keep one copy of of each foreign translation as well. Yeah. I, I look at it as art. Like I, yeah. I, I see, wow, it's amazing that we have several dozen 
languages that our books are published in now. Yeah. And a lot of them, I can't even read the characters because it's in Japanese or it's in Korean. Mm-hmm. And it's just impressive, but it looks like a, a work of art. It does. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, I'll, I'll hold on to those books, but I don't have 10 copies of each either. And I think right. what is important here to understand is that it's not wrong to have books. The problem with books is book clutter. Well, what is clutter? Clutter is when anything gets in the way. Mm. And so if I have books that are getting in the way, well, what does that mean? They can literally physically get in the way. Mm-hmm. I remember when I was moving, I had those 2000 books, Ryan, you'll probably remember this. I had a, a box of books and I jumped down from the truck bed, your truck bed. On oh, your, yeah. And I threw my back out because yep. what a metaphor. <laughs> the stuff literally <laughs> made me throw my back out. <laughs> I'm... I'm hurting myself with stuff. And yeah. that is when I realized like, mm. oh, I don't need to hold on to all of these. Some mm-hmm. of them I've read and I'm not, if I'm honest with myself, I'm not going to read them again so I can let those go. Mm, yeah. And there are others that if I'm honest with myself, I'm not actually going to read that. Or yes. if I really want to read it in the future, if I make the mistake of getting rid of it and I do want to read it, the public library is right down the street. I can oh, yeah. go yeah. check it out if I want to. Or if I absolutely want to repurchase it, I can do that as well. Do you remember the um, the gentleman who came to one of our live podcast events? So this guy came uh, to uh, one of our events. He's asking a question. And his question was, I have about a thousand articles bookmarked on my you know, Chrome or Safari, whatever he, he was using. Mm-hmm. And he was like, it really stresses me out because they are all, all things that I'm genuinely interested in, mm. but I haven't read any of them. And the sheer amount of, of what's bookmarked there, like it's overwhelming. So he really doesn't go and read a lot anyway, because it's too overwhelming. And I was like, man, I would like challenge you to just like delete all of those links yeah, and see how you feel. And I was like, you know, don't do it if you don't want to do it. I'm like, you know, I'm not trying to pressure you in, 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 into anything, but I would like challenge you to Ooh. consider that. Yeah. And uh, he's like, yeah, I will consider that. He sits down and then um, he got back up a couple questions later. He's like, I just deleted all those links. And he's like, <laughs> he's like, I cannot tell you how freeing, how freeing it was. He's like, this weight was instantly lifted off my shoulders. Yeah. And what you're talking about is that was clutter. He had yeah. bookmark mm. clutter. Yeah. It was getting in the way, not physically but mentally. Mm -hmm. And that's the other place in which all of these books get in the way. Yeah, physically, I can throw out my back Mm -hmm. or it's just taking up too much space. It doesn't look great. Mm -hmm. And it's also, though, creating all Mm -hmm. this mental clutter, the emotional clutter, the psychological clutter, and also the burden. We start worrying like, oh, I'm not reading enough. Ironically, when I got rid of those 2,000 books, Mm -hmm. I began reading more. Yeah. Because the clutter wasn't in the way preventing me from reading. Yeah. Mm. It is crazy how the literal clutter of those links prevented him from ever going to that folder and reading the links. But to start over with a fresh start, like, yeah, I could see where that would be more encouraging to read. That's so good. Mm. Uh, This question makes me think of a moment in the office where Michael Scott says to the character Toby, who he hates so much, why are you the way you are? <laughs> this question is a variation of that, right? Why are you the way you are? And the first thing I want to say is anytime mm-hmm. you can take another person's philosophy or practice and mock it, make it look completely stupid and say, <laughs> how could anybody possibly believe that or do that? It only proves that you don't really understand the philosophy or practice. 
Sometimes we say things like, I will never understand people who say this. I will never understand people who do that. And we put that out there as if it's a signal of nobility or virtue, when in reality, it's a weakness, not a strength. Mm -hmm. We should always strive for more clarity and more understanding, even about those things with which we disagree. Mm -hmm. Hey, I don't endorse what they do. I don't agree with what they do, but I totally get it. I can understand why a person would be triggered to do that. I can understand why a person would be incentivized to do that because that understanding puts you in a position where you can be empathetic, not for the sake of saying you're empathetic, but that empathy gives you influence because it allows you to speak to people, not from a higher up place of being on the pulpit, lording over them, Mm -hmm. but speak to them as an ally, as a person that's truly supportive of their success. The next thing I'll say is that when it comes to books or anything else, letting go isn't just about the stuff that we need to sell. It's also about the stories we tell. Anytime you let go of anything, it can be a person, it can be a possession, it can be a place. Anytime you say goodbye, you're also choosing to completely walk away from those aspects of your life that were oriented around whoever or whatever you're saying goodbye to. Mm -hmm. And that means you got to learn how to tell a different story. And so it's important to be gracious to people who are grieving a loss or struggling to say goodbye to something, even if you look at it and say, well, that relationship's toxic anyway, or that book isn't even that important because there's a story behind what they're trying to let go of. And that story is holding their lives together in some kind of way. And if you can engage that story with curiosity, you can help them evolve that story. Mm -hmm. But you can't help someone evolve a story that you yourself don't understand. So instead of saying, hey, why won't you let that thing go? You can say, why is it here in the first place? Why did that thing ever matter to you? And what is it holding together in your life? And once you hear that story, you might surprise yourself and say, oh, don't throw that away. Hang on to it. Because if that person tells you, I got a thousand books because I'm opening up a used bookshop, you wouldn't want them to get rid of it. You say, hold on to it. That's value capital, right? Mm -hmm. So that story might make you say, hang on to it. Or the story might make you say, yeah, I still think you need to let it go. But now I understand how to help you do that in a way that's conducive to the role that it's played in your life. You can only help a person tell a new empowering story when you stop condemning them forever having the old one in the first place. What I'm hearing here has a lot to do with letting go. If it's getting in the way, let it go. If you have a book or a collection of books that are getting in the way, it's okay to let them go. If you have a living room full of excess stuff, a closet with too many t-shirts or pairs of pants or shoes, it's okay to let it go. If you have toxic relationships in your life that are getting in the way of your peace, your contentment, your happiness, it's okay to let it go. All of these things are clutter. And what we want to do is not completely eliminate all the clutter from our lives, but understand what is clutter. And we can begin to let it go one by one by one. The reason I say you'll never eliminate all of it is from time to time, something that serves you today will stop serving you tomorrow. So Mm. it's not clutter today, but the thing that is serving you today might be clutter tomorrow. So we have to keep questioning. We have to figure out what that story is because the story we told ourselves before about the thing isn't necessarily the true story today. Mm. And therefore... It's okay to let go. Hmm. We have a question from Instagram. Steven has something for us. 
I have been an aspiring writer for some time, and your 15 Ways to Write Better ebook and How to Write Better YouTube channel have given me the final push to actually get started. After accumulating a bunch of ideas in a notebook, I'm finally turning them into a book. Once the book is done and I'm happy with it, how do I go about getting it published? First off, Stephen, congratulations on finally getting up the courage to sit in the chair to do the writing itself. You're no longer an aspiring writer. You're actually writing. Uh, Folks who are listening to this, if you want to check out the free ebook, it's called uh, 15 Ways to Write Better. Uh, That's the one he's talking about. It's just howtowritebetter.org. You can download it for free. And then the YouTube channel he's talking about is youtube.com slash howtowritebetter. I do some pre-lessons over there. I also teach a a four-week writing class. And in there, the fourth week, we talk about publishing. But let's just say this, don't get ahead of yourself. Now, I know the reason you're asking this question is because you're looking toward the horizon. And we often want to have the perfect life, the perfect book, the perfect publication. And you're so worried about the outcome that you forget about the process. Mm-hmm. I will tell you this, Stephen, the most joyous part of writing a book is not publishing the book. Mm-mm. In fact, there's a whole lot that goes into publishing the book where that's the business, the administrative side, the formatting, the alpha readers, the beta readers, going through the editing process and cover design. And all those things can be fun and joyous and exciting, but the most joyous part of writing, sitting down in that chair and focusing and losing sight of the rest of the world because that story begins to come alive on the page or that blog post becomes alive on the page. You can sit down at what TK does with his tweet storms. There, it's not just poetic and beautiful, it's communicative and expressive, but also what you do, TK, is I can tell how focused you are on something. This is a writing exercise for you that you use Twitter to express yourself. And it's just another medium. Mm. I don't care where, and by the way, that's publishing. What What is publishing? Mm. I mean, in fact, even on Twitter, there's a little button that says publish, publish right? Yeah. And so same with the blog. Whenever we post a blog post, it says publish. Mm. Now we think about publishing, it's how do I find a traditional publisher? Mm-hmm. And then how do I go through the nine months of all the rigmarole of once my book is handed in? Yeah, I get it. That's what a lot of people want. But as an author, this is a great term our friend Colin Wright coined. He's an authorpreneur. (laughs) I like that. I like that. Because, yes, it is important for you to promote your book, to get it out there. You write to be read. There's no question about that. Otherwise, you'd just be keeping a journal, which is fine, too. Yeah. But that's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is writing for publication. But there's so many different ways to be read now that doesn't involve going the traditional route. In fact, Ryan and I have four books together. I also wrote a novel. And um, those four books, three of them are independently published. Mm-hmm. And there's a difference between self-published and independently published. We started our own publishing company back in 2012 with Colin Wright, mm-hmm. Asymmetrical Press. We published books for nine different authors. It was a beautiful experiment. We don't yeah. still publish books for other authors, but we learned a lot about that. In fact, we wrote an entire six-part series called How to Publish an Indie Book. Mm-hmm. And the way I look at it is sort of like a, a garage band versus an indie rock band. Self-publishing is like 
fine. It's just a, it's a garage band. You're in there with your friends and you're just jamming, right? Mm-hmm. Indie publishing is doing all the same stuff that a, a major publisher would do. All the quality control, the distribution, all of those things, but doing it on an independent level, doing it on your own. And it's incredibly Mm. rewarding. And we've gone through traditional publishers for all of our foreign books, obviously, but Mm -hmm. also for our last book, Love People Use Things. And what I learned from that process, even though I really enjoyed the book, I don't like being beholden to major publishers. And I, I don't see a world in which I continue to do that. I much rather go the independent route and retain ownership, control, and the flexibility of doing it on my own. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, I'll put a link to that series, uh, How to Publish an Indie Book, in the show notes. You can find the show notes at theminimalists.com slash podcast if you're interested in reading about the entire soup to nuts process. Yeah, you know, uh, and if you do go a traditional publishing route, uh, it's important to keep in mind that, that publishers look for evidence of momentum. Sometimes when we're in the middle of the creative process, we want to wait until we have something really beautiful and then we can show it with the world because the last thing we want is for people to see the messiness of our creative process. But it can be very helpful to adopt some form of working out loud so that you are teasing it out and letting the audience know something good is coming. Something Mm -hmm. cool is coming so that by the time you drop it, people have been prepared for it. And when publishers evaluate your book, they can look you up and they can say, oh, here's someone who has some momentum. They're already doing cool stuff, saying cool things. We're not going to be the only ones doing the work of marketing this. They already have an audience. They already have a habit of putting themselves and their work out there. Lastly, I think of the words of Zig Ziglar who said, sales is a transference of feeling. Anytime you're promoting something, the way you feel about it is going to affect the attitude of the people you're promoting it to more than anything else. So one of the best things you can do to get that work published is to actually write something that you feel passionate about. Everyone says, to the point of it being a meme, I hate sales. What Mm -hmm. that really means is, I hate pushing products on people that they don't want and that I don't believe in. I hate feeling like I'm twisting other people's arms to get them to buy something that I and they know they don't actually need. But when it comes to recommending things that we believe in, everybody turns into a salesperson then. You see a movie that blows your mind. You read a book that's amazing. You eat a meal that's delicious. What do you do? You grab your friend by the arm and you say, yo, you gotta, you gotta check out this place. Mm. You gotta read this book. You gotta watch that movie. And that feeling transfers. And so if you want to sell well, don't focus on the money. Don't focus on the, I need people to read my book so I can pay my bills. Mm-hmm. Write something that makes you feel like, ah. Oh, I can't wait for the world to read this. Oh, man, I'm so excited. Everybody needs to read this, even if I got to give out a few copies, because that feeling will ultimately transfer. And you'll be like that teacher in school who, even though they teach a boring subject, makes everybody pay attention because they're fired up about it. That's the best gift you can give to the world. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I love what you're saying, because I think we're all selling something. The question is, is what are you selling? And do you believe in it? I remember our first... Uh, book book tour stop um, in Orlando. We were with a bunch of uh, couch surfers, mm-hmm. and um, what an awesome group it was! And someone asked a question, and we were torn with uh, minimalism, live a meaningful life. And he asked a question, and I was like, you know what? I was like, I'm going to give you like a high level. I'm like, and I'm, but I'm not trying to like sell you anything, man. I'm like, but you know, in our book, like we we literally write exactly about what you're talking about. You know, much more in depth. You might find value in that book. And he's like, why are you so trepidatious to sell your own book, man? 
And I'm like, I just don't want you to feel like I'm pushing something on you. He's like, but if you believe in it, like it's okay to to be excited about something that you truly mm. believe in. Mm. And it's shifted my whole context. Like, I mean, just that first tour stop, thank God, um, because we've been on a million tour stops since then. That's right. Um, but yeah, it's all about like, yeah, what, what are you selling? Because we're all selling something for sure. And how, how do you feel about that mm-hmm. thing that you're creating? If you're just wishy-washy, it's why I don't have a problem talking about our books on this podcast. And the reason I don't have a problem with it is because these are books that I believe in, that yeah. we put our blood, sweat, and tears and and oftentimes spent a year plus on mm-hmm. a book. With Love People Use Things, it was over two years writing that book. And mm-hmm. so I feel great about the book. And yes, I write to be read. It doesn't mean that I think you should read the book, but if this topic interests you, that's exactly why I wrote this. Because if I could simply, like, Ryan, if I could answer the question in one paragraph, then I wouldn't write the book. You write a book because you have something more to say. Yeah, mm. And I think that's key for Stephen and anyone else who's considering writing is sometimes it doesn't require a book. Sometimes a blog post is sufficient. In fact, it's better as a blog post. I've seen this quite often where someone writes this viral article for the Atlantic or the New Yorker and it's awesome and then they get some great publishing deal to expand into a book and it's like, oh no, you sort of lost the essence of the thing because Mm. it's no longer that thing that really resonated with people. And so sometimes a tweet will do. Sometimes it takes an entire book length project. You can't do infinite jest in a tweet. It's a million words. Mm. I could tell you my favorite line from infinite jest. It's um, everything I've ever let go of has claw marks on it. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's a good one. Let's move on to our next question. We got something from Udoy on Patreon. What are your individual recommended must read books around the topic of minimalism? What books or online articles are you on right now? Of course, there are no musts, there are no shoulds, there are no oughts. Mm-hmm. Ryan, you ought to read this book. I'm not saying you must read it, but you ought to. <laughs> you ought to, yeah. But here's the thing. I will talk about some books, and I think it's different in terms of, like, cause I'm not reading a bunch of minimalism books anymore now, but mm-hmm. back in 2010, I was really intrigued by this. And also blogs as well. We've talked about blogs I mean, if there's one minimalist blog to go to right away, it's Zen Habits. ZenHabits.net. Our friend Leo Babalta, you know him from our first film, Minimalism. He also has been on the Minimalist podcast before. Leo Babalta, his blog is stunning. It is the benchmark for all minimalist writing online. He's been doing it, I think, since 2006. So before Twitter, before Facebook was ubiquitous, he was blogging regularly. If you want some simple living insights, zenhabits.net. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. I do have 10 books, though, mm. for um, people who are interested in simple living or minimalism. Obviously, I would start with two of our books. <laughs> of course. So, Jordan, he'll put up uh, the books here on the screen in the video version, if you're watching the video version here. I mean, the first two books, I would say, is Everything That Remains mm-hmm. and Love People Use Things. Yeah. Everything That Remains is a, is a book that Ryan and I wrote when we left the corporate world. We moved to Montana, a cabin in the middle of nowhere, and wrote about this five-year journey of being these suit-and-tie corporate guys and transforming into minimalists, and eventually the minimalists, but mm-hmm. just letting go of all the excess stuff. And that five-year journey from 
the corporate world. And it starts out in a really dark place in the corporate world and how we let go of the corporate world. We let go of the expectations. We let go of place. We let go of stuff. Mm. We let go of our homes. We let go of our past lives, of our identities, so that we can move forward. Mm. Our mm. most recent book, Love People Use Things, is about the seven essential relationships mm. in our lives. And so you can check both of those out. But let me talk about some other people's books that have really resonated with me over the years. And if you all want to butt in, I'd be happy to hear that as well. So first off, uh, if you're going to buy a minimalism book that isn't by the minimalist, I think Joshua Becker's book, Things That Matter, oh, yeah. is, is a really strong book. Any book by Joshua Becker, but that one in particular, it's his most recent book. We mm -hmm. had him on the podcast and we did a whole episode called Things That Matter about the book. And, and he was able to talk about that. And really understanding that there are some things, like actual things that matter in our lives, but then the things that matter are usually not the things in our lives. The important things aren't the things at mm. all. So things that matter way back in, I think, 2009, I, I read a book called The 100 Thing Challenge by Dave Bruno. Wait, what's that? No, that wasn't a PDF. He got, he got published on that one, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, it was a huge yeah. book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. bestseller book. Uh, yeah. 100 Thing Challenge, Dave Bruno for one year lived with just 100 items. Yeah. And the thing I remember from that book that really stood out to me is he learned this lesson that I was able to tweeze out of that book and carry forward with me. And that lesson is our things are not passive. If you own a thing, you have to take care of the thing. Mm. You have to worry about the thing. You have to clean the thing, replace the batteries in the thing store the thing, make space for the thing, protect the thing, paint the thing. And when it's all said and done, you have to replace the thing. And so our things are not passive. They play an active role in our life. And so if you want more peace, you can't acquire more things to get more peace. The peace is uncovered through, this, through the act of subtracting. Mm. And so The 100 Thing Challenge by Dave Bruno. I would also say How to Be Here by Rob Bell. Mm -hmm. This isn't necessarily a minimalist book per se, but it is this foundational book. It made a huge, it had a huge role in my own life. When my wife read it, she left the university role. She was working for university for a decade. And she read it and she realized like she had a lot of career clutter mm -hmm. in her life. And the book, How to Be Here by Rob Bell, is really about reshaping your present and letting go of the past mm -hmm. so we can be here right now. I buy that book by the case and still hand it out. We have a whole stack of them downstairs in the writer's room because it was such a powerful, short book. Mm -hmm. I've read it several times. I've handed it out to a bunch of people who I know will get value from it. Yeah. How to Be Here by Rob Bell. That's a great recommendation for minimalist books because it's a foundation that really, I think we're trying to lead people to, which is being able to be in the present, to be in the moment, to, uh, yeah, to, 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 to have a clutter-free mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's yeah, a great because, book. Because the clutter <laughs> obviously extends well beyond the stuff. The yeah. stuff is the initial clutter. We have all these other types of clutter, including that mental clutter you're talking about. There's a great story in there. I won't run it for you, but he talks about the time where he had a traumatic brain injury and he was concussed and he let go of all of his memories. Mm. He was forced to. Yeah. And that actually brought him into the moment and taught him this lesson. He had to relearn like the names of his family even. 
right? And so what a powerful exercise mm-hmm. in letting go of the past and really being present. Mm-hmm. The next book is a book called Goodbye Things. You'll see it up here on the screen if you're watching the video version. It's by Fumio uh, Sasaki, and it's really about the art of Japanese minimalism. So if you're looking into that, I would I'd certainly suggest that book first, uh, Goodbye Things. Hmm. And just for the sake of time, I'll go through a few others here. Uh, Colin Wright, our good friend Colin Wright, some thoughts about relationships. This good is one. a book about relationship clutter, mm-hmm. essentially. Yeah. And it is a book that I also buy by the case, and it helped in my own marriage. Bex and I, when we first met, we sat down and read a chapter a day together because these really short chapters, and they're not really chapters, he calls them policies. So for example, the one of the policies in there is the I will tell you policy. So, you know, in a relationship, quite often you'll, you'll go up to someone and say, hey, uh, what's wrong? Hey, everything okay? We don't do that. And the reason we don't do that is because I have the I will tell you policy. If something's wrong, I will tell you about it. And mm. I got that from this book. And he has these like 30 or so policies that radically have enhanced my relationships, whether it's a romantic relationship or a business partner relationship, friendship, acquaintance, whatever. Having these policies set up or really setting up boundaries for our relationships to avoid having toxic relationships yeah. that we have to declutter later. The best way to let go is to let go in advance, right? Mm. A couple more for you real quick. Mm. Awareness by Anthony DeMello. If you're a longtime listener to the podcast, you know how it's probably my favorite book of all time. Mm. It's not a minimalist book per se. And I think it came out in the 80s, but it is a book about Anthony DeMello is a master of letting go, Mm. letting go of the expectations that create the discontent in our lives and the experiments and the insights he have he has in that book. I mean, there's not been a book that has had a more profound effect on me than Awareness by Anthony DeMello. So anyone who's an aspiring minimalist will want to check that out as well. Uh, Here's a practical one for you. The Total Money Makeover by Dave Ramsey. Yeah. If you have debt, it is the best plan that I've ever come across Mm -hmm. to let go of financial clutter. Yeah. I buy that book by the case as well and hand it out. We know Dave now, but I used that book before I ever met Dave to get myself out of debt. Ryan did the same thing. Yeah. And I've seen that formula work for thousands and thousands and thousands of people who are struggling with excess financial clutter. Yeah. Which, by the way, any debt is financial clutter. Yeah. Amen. One final book for you. If you're looking for some pictures. This is a, a book about sort of uh, the interior life or the interior of homes. It's by uh, Natalie Walton. It's called The Slow Home. And it's about the, the slow movement, which I believe stands for sustainable, S-L-O-W, organic, whole, what's the L? Local. A sustainable, mm. local, organic, and whole. Ah. And so it's about slow living, slow interiors, getting the excess Mm. out of the way. You can see how it makes for a peaceful Mm. home. Mm. And uh, a few other books while we're at it, just because uh, a lot of those books I mentioned are are written by by guys. And I've been reading a lot of women's literature recently. In fact, we did a whole video about this on the How to Write Better channel about uh, what people call chiclet which uh, I don't like the term because I think it's pejorative. Mm-hmm. But um, what I will say is that I've been reading a lot of women novelists. And uh, here are four that have stood out to me over the a period of time. Well, Mary Carr, she's actually a memoirist, my favorite, one of my favorite writers. She's an 
I'd put her on the Mount Rushmore of writers. Her writing mm. is so beautiful. It's stunning. Mm. Uh, she has a great memoir called The Liars Club. A few other novels that I've read recently. Mm. You have a book by Catherine Lacey called The Answers. I've talked about it on this podcast. Emily Gold. I read this book uh, during the break. Uh, it's called Friendship. I found it. I was going, I was getting a medical procedure done overseas and I w- went to a coffee shop. I didn't have a book to read and I just grabbed one off the shelf and it was this book and it's called Friendship. It was so, so good. It's about these women who are getting ready to turn 30 and they're really struggling with this period of life because they mm. finally are, feel like they, they, they're not children anymore, but they're still feeling those tugs of immaturity. Mm, yeah. My first novel was kind of about this as well. It was called As a Decade Fades. It was about a 29-year-old singer-songwriter who was letting go of that immaturity to move forward. And finally, uh, Acts of Service is another book by Lillian Fishman. I think I talked about it on the podcast, Malabama. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that was an added value on a segment last year. Yeah, yeah. It's just a, a wonderful, beautiful... Uh, the writing in it is so stunning. Uh, The gorgeous sentences, the storytelling, you feel like you're a part of, you're immersed in the characters. So generally, I'm bringing these four books up because I read a lot more fiction than I read nonfiction. I don't read a whole lot of nonfiction anymore because I find a lot of truth, not in prescriptive nonfiction, but in the interior lives of characters that are written about by authors who really cherish the written word. Mm. Mm. That observation, that's an episode unto itself. Yeah, that's good, man. The uh, the manner in which story delivers without prescription, the opportunity for epiphany. Ryan, what time is it? Oh, you know what time it is. It's time for the lightning round where we answer your questions from TikTok. Yes, indeed. You can follow us on TikTok. Also, Instagram, <laughs> Facebook, and Twitter, at The Minimalists. During the lightning round, so Ryan and TK and I do our best to answer questions with a short, shareable, less than 140 character response. We put the text to these minimal maxims in the show notes over at theminimalists.com slash podcast so you can copy and share our pithy answers on social media if you'd like. And now you can find all of our minimal maxims in one place as well. Minimalmaxims.com. Looks like Tatiana has a question from TikTok. When you talk about developing habits for writing, are these methods specifically for writing books or writing in general? Mm. Hmm. Well, we're going to put some time on the clock. We got 60 seconds here. Maybe we start with uh, T.K. Coleman. Mm. What what Kitty Lattimore (laughs) lyrics are you going to quote today? (laughs) You want to be a good writer, listen to Brian McKnight and read the lyrics. All my writing comes from boys to men. Uh, (laughs) uh, Let's see here. Okay. Bad writing is the initiation ritual into good writing. Mm. When it comes to writing, the question isn't, do you want to be good or are you already good? The question is, are you willing to be bad long enough to become good? I forget who the writer was who said it, but he said something to the effect. It was was actually whatever the writer's name is, the one who wrote Tarzan. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, and also uh, the Princess of Mars. But he says that that every writer has uh, thousands of words of bad prose in their soul. And writing is the process of purifying your soul of all the bad prose that you have. And so whether you're writing in general or writing a book, ultimately writing begins with a confrontation with the truth of who we are and a willingness to allow the world to see us for who we are 
in that vulnerability, in that honesty before we become beautiful. That's how you get beautiful. It's like being physically fit. Unless you're willing to look out of shape, you don't actually get into shape. Mm. Mm. Right in time, TK Coleman. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Ryan Nicodemus, you got 60 seconds. What do you got for us? Oh, man. Uh, My pithy answer is this. A pleasant life is composed of unpleasant habits. So it doesn't matter if you're writing. It doesn't matter if you're playing guitar. You are going to have to put in the work to be an expert at whatever it is that you're trying to do. Mm. So with your writing class, Josh, yes, it's about writing fiction. It's about writing nonfiction. It's about writing emails. It's about writing, you know, uh, uh, social media posts, whatever it is. Um, if you want to be good at something, you've got to put in the work. And here's the thing about a purpose. We're all looking to, to have a purpose. Mm. Where's my purpose? TK, where's my purpose? I need to have a purpose. As if we want to like possess a purpose mm. and you cannot possess a purpose. You can serve a purpose, but there is no ownership with the purpose. But here's the thing. When you serve a purpose and you serve it well, that purpose will have you. And all those unpleasant things that are a little bit unpleasant makes them just a little bit more pleasant when it's driven by the purpose you're serving. Ooh, Come on, baby. That was a half court shot at the buzzer. (laughs) TikTok that, Danny Unknown. What I love about what you're both saying here, before you put 60 seconds on the clock for me, you're both touching on something that I think is is crucial here. We often want to possess something. Mm. But when writing becomes another possession, mm. yeah. well, then it be- can become clutter. When yeah. you have to do it, that's not what we're talking about here. You get to do it. However, what Ryan is illuminating, there will be resistance. Oh, I don't feel like sitting down in the chair today to do the writing. <laughs> Because there are all these other things that are easier to do. I have all these other excuses. I used to have a checklist of 15 different things I had to do before I started writing. I have to fold the laundry. I have to make sure the dishes are washed. And then all of these things. And of course, I do 13 or 14 of them. But there was always something else to do. So I never actually wrote. How did I start writing? I decluttered the checklist. I decluttered the to-dos. You can make only... You can make only one thing a priority, right? And so writing became the priority. The first thing I do when I get up is I write. I don't have to worry about anything else. I have no other rules. The first rule is to wake up. The second rule is to write. And that is it. It is that simple. Give me 60 seconds and I got something pithy for you. A habit is a byproduct of doing something compelling. And so if you hate writing... I wouldn't suggest sitting down every day to do the writing. However, if you feel the resistance because you know it's going to be a little bit more difficult than folding the laundry, I say yes. That resistance is actually a beacon. It shows you the direction in which you want to go because if you find writing compelling, then you're also going to be resistant to it. Anything that is worthwhile, you are going to experience a little bit of resistance. It's almost like your body's saying, no, 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 no. There's something easier out here. Well, simple ain't easy, but it is simple to get up every day, to sit in that chair for one hour, put the words on the page, stare at that blinking line, and do the actual writing. I don't care about you being a writer. I just want to see you writing. Yeah, baby. My man says simple ain't easy. No, Mm. no, it ain't. No, it ain't. You know, what you were talking about makes me think about um, our really good friend, Matt Diavella, who directed uh, both of our documentaries. Um, 
Remember he, cause he wanted to uh, uh, talk about his version of minimalism and talk about his story. And remember like he started a blog yep. and mm-hmm. he was like, you know, just typing away, typing away, posting away. And he got to a point where he was like, I don't thoroughly enjoy this. Like this it's, isn't my medium. This isn't my medium. And, and we're like, no dude, like you're a film guy. Like that's your medium. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so that's where, you know, he started his YouTube channel and stuff. And that was so compelling to do the video aspect that he couldn't not do it. Right. And um, now he is way more popular than us. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations to Matthew Avella. Yeah. Let's check in with our Patreon live stream in a moment. But first, real quick, for right here, right now, here's one thing that's going on in the life of the minimalist. Since we're talking so much about writing today, just real quick, my four-week online writing class is called How to Write Better. I only open it two or three times a year, 48 hours only, 100 students only. It opens up February 17th. So mark your calendars. If you head on over to howtowritebetter.org, put your email address in there. We'll notify you when the course opens. You can be one of the 100 people who sign up for that. It's only open for 48 hours and you can interact with the other students and it's an interactive class, four weeks and we will show you how to build the writing habit, how to write, how to rewrite. There's a whole mm. week on editing, and there's a whole week on publishing as well. Howtowritebetter.org for more details. Let's check in with the Patreon live stream, Alabama. What do you got for us? We've got a question here from Amy. She says, clinging to books is a very timely topic. I made a first pass at my bookshelf over the weekend. I know I have more to release, but I'm not sure where to go with them. Calling the local library is on my to-do list, but what other ways can I intentionally give away my books? Mm, I'll tell you how I do it typically, is I will go to those free local libraries, the neighborhood libraries. Yep. Mm-hmm. The little libraries. Yes. I adore those. <laughs> the those little libraries. Yeah. Remember when our last book came out, Ryan, Love People Use Things, and we did uh, these little libraries, I think, in 200 cities across, oh, yeah. uh, across America. Yeah. And we even autographed some books and went and put it in like, People did a scavenger hunt to try to find advanced copies of Love People Use Things. Yeah, yeah it was fun. I love the little neighborhood, little libraries. And mm. there are websites. In fact, I don't remember off the top of my head, but we'll have podcast Sean put a link to. There's a, a website that shows you where the closest little library is to your home. So they're just these like giant mailbox looking things. Mm-hmm. They usually have a see-through window and and there are a bunch of books in there, but quite often they get depleted really quickly. And so you can donate your books to your neighborhood. And so your community can now get value from those books. I, I picked one up the other day from uh, maybe about a, two weeks ago. It was a Kafka book, um, The Metamorphosis. And I was like, I haven't read Kafka since like my mid-20s. And I was able to dive back in. I was just walking by it and I saw it. It caught my eye and there it was. And so you can declutter, but also add value to other people's lives, whether it's donating to the library selling books to your local bookstore. That's another place that I do. A local bookstore up in Ojai. Yeah. They have, they allow you to sell your books to them. Now, you don't get a whole lot, but I sell a bunch of books enough to I can buy one used book from them and I'm not spending any money. Yeah. yeah. What, what did we do when we were up there? We have like a first line battle. Oh, just like yeah. like pick a random book. Uh-huh. That's one of my favorite things to do. I yeah, go to a bookstore with friends <laughs> and we'll just grab a book off the shelf and we, we read the first line. And sometimes I teach in the writing class called narrative urgency. 
does this first line make me want to read the second line? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if so, that's a great first line. But a lot of first lines are like, oh, in fact, we did a video. Put a link to this in the show notes. Uh, Bill Clinton's boring oh first my line. God. Yeah. And it, it came from that that trip up yeah. to the bookstore up in Ojai. It did. Do you remember the line? No, it's so boring. But I, I remember the line. I remember how I would have rewritten it. Mm, and so yeah. he talks about, in 1944, I was born in a beige. Uh, da, da. And it just like, it's all communication, no expression. Mm. He talk, but he was born in Hope, Arkansas. Yeah. Think about this. Here's a great first line for, for Bill Clinton. It's on whatever the date was. Yeah. On December 14th, 1944, I was born on the outskirts of Hope. Yes. Dude, hey, but see, Come on. that's oh yeah, man. Here's, here's the thing, though. Hmm. No, no serious stinker or writer ever dreams of sounding like someone who's running for office, because when you're running for office, you, you got to neutralize yourself and be as universally appealing mm. and inoffensive as possible. I'm mm. not arbitrarily hating. This isn't the anti-government tweet no, of the week. But no, you know what I mean? Like, like you got, you got <laughs> to always appear polished, and you you can't admit what kind of music you really like. You got to hide behind classical and jazz because it has the least amount of obviously <laughs> offensive con- you know content. Nobody's gonna be like you know my favorite musical artist is you know Eminem or something right. like that if they're running for office, even mm. if they really believe that. Yeah. And so. This goes back to you got to bring your personality to it and not just follow prescriptions. You hear it in public speeches all the time. I mean, how many public speeches have you heard where it's like, we live in a society that, (sighs) you know, in the year 1955, Mm -hmm. it's like, come on, give me you, give me you, do something that could possibly be wrong. Yes. You know? No, that's a good observation. Like, you got to be more vanilla when you're running for office. And I I get that. That translates to the book, but it doesn't make the book compelling. And if you start... The book with I was born on the outskirts of hope. Yeah. Oh, I want to read the next line. Mm. And I think that's what compelling writing does. It propels you yeah. to the second line. The second line propels you to the third, so forth and so on. We'll get back to the Patreon live stream here in a little bit. But first, Melabam, what do you got for us? Here are some minimalist comments and insights from our listeners. Hi, fellow minimalists. I just wanted to leave this tip because it has been um, a recent shift in my way of thinking. On the podcast, when I used to hear people or even Josh and Ryan discussing like consuming consciously and thinking about the companies where they purchase things, I felt like that was too much work to do the research behind companies. Uh, And recently, I've kind of realized that my power in a way comes from the things that I'm spending my money on um, in our current society. And so it actually seems like a very small price to pay to do the research and purchase products from places that care about the environment and that treat their employees well, uh, because I suppose the alternative is spending money on goods and places that maybe don't care about their employees and don't treat the environment well. And then if I am purchasing from them, then in a way I am supporting those behaviors which don't align with my values. Hi, Josh and Ryan. This is Gina calling from Hershey, Pennsylvania. 
I have a listener tip for finding free reading material for avid readers on a budget. There's the local library, which we're usually the most familiar with, but there might be other larger libraries available to you within your state. For example, as a Pennsylvania resident, you can access the materials at the Philadelphia Free Library absolutely for free, which is a much larger collection than my local library. I use an app called Overdrive and log in with my local and state library information. I have two different collections to search from. Without ever stepping foot into this library, I've downloaded countless audio and ebooks. It works just like a regular library. If something isn't available, you can place a hold and you'll be notified when it's ready. I'd recommend doing some research for your state to see if there are other libraries you might not have known that you have access to. Welcome back to The Minimalists. Man, we got a lot more to talk about today. Let's start with some talkaboutables. Let's do it. We got some news. We have someone who graduated from The Minimalists. Yes. Her name is Emma the Immigrant. Mm. And she started with us mm. uh, back in 2021. Mm-hmm. She moved down to Los Angeles. And um, her and Alabama and Danny all started the so- same week. And we want to wish her farewell, but we'll still be in close contact with her. She moved back to Canada when we figured out getting a visa for her was going to be really difficult and quite cost prohibitive. And so she moved back to Canada. She'd been working for us. And then she moved from Canada to the UK uh, with her boyfriend. And so she's been in the UK for a while. She's been helping us out with some of our Patreon management, Mm -hmm. as well as minimalist.org. We have free local meetup groups in 100 different cities over at minimalist.org. She's been helping out with those things, but she is moving on. Uh, She does quite a few things, so I couldn't possibly describe everything that she's doing, but she has her own podcast. If you want to check in with her, it's called The Curious One. Mm -hmm. We'll put a link to her uh, one more time on social media. A lot of you have been following her uh, on Instagram as well. But let's just say, let's take a moment and say thank you to Emma for everything that you've done for The Minimalist, hmm. helping us help other people, support people when they're healing their relationship with stuff. She's been an important part of that, and we're really grateful for the time that she's spent helping us help others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's going to be missed. Man, she was she was awesome. But I am so glad to see her moving on and doing what she needs to do to live her curious life. <laughs> yeah, Emma, we appreciate you for um yeah, just just being a great teammate and and making this magic possible. Yeah. We've helped a lot of people and uh you've played a big role in that. We're going to miss you for sure. Yeah. Man, her attention to, de- to detail was awesome. Yeah. I really appreciated that about her. Also her enthusiasm. Yeah. Uh, she she's a very curious person. And I think mm-hmm. that lends itself to a a enthusiasm, a natural innate enthusiasm. The thing about enthusiasm is it's not really something that you can fake without coming off as disingenuous or inauthentic or just like a total scumbag, mm-hmm. really. She's the opposite of that. She is so enthusiastic when she dives into something. And she's yeah. helped us a lot over the last uh, year and a half or so. She is moving on. Emma, you will be missed. I was looking at my calendar the other day and <laughs> it was like the perfect metaphor. It was not New Year's Day. <laughs> it was the day after New Year's Day. And on the calendar, it says New Year's Day substitute on January 2nd. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> and I noticed the same thing with Christmas as well, because mm-hmm. Christmas and New Year's fell on a weekend at the end of last year. 
there is the observed holiday, which occurs on a Monday. But the way that it was written on Google Calendar was New Year's Day substitute, hmm. which I read as a metaphor. Like, hey, you screwed up yesterday, but don't worry. <laughs> It's a new day today. You can always begin again. Hmm. You don't have to wait until New Year's next year. We've got a new day today. Beginning of each year, I, I send out the tweet. Day one or one day, you decide. Hmm. And I do that on New Year's Day, but it doesn't have to be New Year's Day. It can be New Year's Day substitute. And any day of the year can be New Year's Day substitute. Yeah. It could yeah. be June 15th. It can be October 11th. It could be November 17th. It doesn't matter. Today is the day that you can start over. It's New mm. Year's Day substitute every day. I love that. <laughs> Some calendars, too, say uh, New Year's observed for Monday when the actual day was on Sunday. And that just goes to the point. You can observe the spirit of that day any day you wish. This is yeah. what I do with Christmas. I'm here all year round. The office hours never close for Christmas. Mm. Yeah. Oh, man. I, uh, I'm going to start going back to Monarch, which is our uh, our physician, Dr. Ryan Green. He's got like a soup to nuts health center. So it's like physician, uh, uh, massage therapy, um, uh, lifting weights, cardio, and they got, you know, all of the experts there, uh, physical therapy. It's, it's an amazing place. And I was going to start on January one, but I was like, there's something about it being so cliche. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to keep it. Cause my shoulder has been, I was injured. So I couldn't really do any heavy lifting. Mm -hmm. So I've been doing some physical therapy and I'm finally like ready to start getting back into the gym. And I was like, oh, I'm just going to do one more month of physical therapy because I'm going to start in February 1st rather than January 1st to not, you know, be that guy going in there. This is my new year's resolution, which has nothing to do with new year's resolution. But it's funny how I am like, um, I don't know. I'm allergic to the whole idea of, um, of New Year's resolutions. I don't know why. That's a me thing. I don't, you know, I'm not suggesting that other people should be allergic to it, but yeah. But I know too, if I would have started January 1st, it would have been um, super crowded. That's like the busiest day <laughs> for, for uh, yeah, for the gyms. Yeah. yeah. I, I, the funny thing is I, I saw our friend Rich Roll talking about his gym was closed on New Year's Day. Oh, that's hilarious. Which mm -hmm. seems like a terrible business decision on their part. Yeah. Because it yeah. is exactly the day when everyone is going back and and they are trying their best. We don't have to wait for that one day. No. Every day can be the New Year's substitute. You Amen. can observe the habit change today. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, either all time is sacred or none of it is. Mm. I had... I recently went on a trip. I had to get some stem cells. So it was a medical procedure and I had to go to Grand Cayman to get it done. I was there and it was, I was hoping to like sort of couple it as a vacation while we're down there. So I brought my wife, but it was hell. Mm. It was like two days of, of significant hell. I had an allergic reaction to the stem cells and, mm. and um, it was just like the worst flu you've ever had, but attenuated into a smaller much more intense window. Mm. And while I was down there, I thought about a few things. I made this list of five things that are really overrated for me. And I thought this was <laughs> perfect for this episode. 
Because the first thing on that list is books. Mm. We've been talking a lot about today about books and writing and clinging to books. And I think for much of my life, I overrated books. I want to be clear about what that is. And I'll talk about these other things I think are overrated too. But I am all for reading. I don't think reading is overrated. But the physical artifact, the book itself, Hmm. I prized over the reading. Hmm. If I have the book, it makes me look smart. If I have the book, it is the potential for reading. It has all the information in it. But of course, the information being in a book is useless to me if I I don't read the book, right? Hmm. I would also say that in some way, books, we venerate them maybe unnecessarily. There are a lot of bad books out there, a lot of unhelpful books out there. And we also force ourselves to finish books that we dislike because mm-hmm. we don't understand the sunk cost fallacy of <laughs> I've already read 50 pages and I guess I have to slog through the rest of it. <laughs> well, we're completionists yeah. also. Yeah, read like, econ book. <laughs> you can't have a beginning without an end. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I totally have done that before where I'm like, I'm already halfway through. I got to finish it. Like, maybe it'll get better if I <laughs> yeah, keep reading. Right. It's like, ooh. Yeah. And, <laughs> and so I think for me, books, and this is just for me, books have been overrated because it's not that a book is more virtuous or better than mm. watching a series or playing a board game. I don't generally do either mm. one of those things, but I don't want to put books simply on a pedestal. I enjoy the act of reading. Mm. And whether that's a book or it is an article from a magazine or it's a quarterly review like the Paris Review, which I'll hold up here. This is going to be on our added value segment later in the episode. I'm going to read my my favorite poem to you. It is it's much more about the act of reading itself than it is about the accumulation of books. So you really are one of those folks who buys Playboy just for the articles. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, David Foster Wallace wrote a really great essay in Playboy magazine back in, uh, I think it was 95, 96. No. <laughs> and um, I never actually read it in Playboy, but it's in one of his books. I think it's in, um, it's called Big Red Sun is mm. the name of the essay. I think it was in uh, Consider the Lobster. Anyway, um, I in that case, I would have. Yeah. I'd still <laughs> look at the pictures, though. <laughs> All right, a couple, couple more right. things that I've... <laughs> found to be overrated. I've always thought that flippers while swimming, totally overrated. Yes. If you agree with me, let me know in the comments. If you disagree with me, let me know in the comments about any of these as well. I'm eager to know because I remember as a kid, I I swam like a fish as a kid. But as soon as I put flippers on, Mm. I just, I almost drown (laughs) every time. I I did the same exact thing, man. So, yes, the flippers that aren't made specifically for swimming, they're just like aesthetic. Yes. Um, yes, I totally agree. They are, they are overrated. I will also say, though, that like Mariah and I, we went scuba diving um, on the Great Barrier Reef and the flippers were extremely helpful, like underneath that water. But but the thing is, is that like diving flippers, mm-hmm. they are so long mm-hmm. and they look so goofy and like you would never actually show up at a public pool with these like because they make you an extra two feet long you just be taking up the whole like pool for people right? in the yeah, face exactly exactly yeah <laughs> so um but i do agree like the ones that we got as kids it was just like 
it was total it was total aesthetics and um yes it, it almost probably killed us more than it helped us <laughs> <laughs> all right so good to know flippers for the swimming pool bad <laughs> flippers for scuba diving good in your estimation yeah sure yeah 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 here's another thing what else I, you got? I discovered yeah. to be overrated recently instagram the app itself mm. Mm. yeah i'm starting to get kind of sick of it myself man and i spent over a week off of it while I was gone and I realized like oh that twitch of what is going on I twitch for my DMs for some reason which they're Mm. barely even you know it's not like a hundred people are messaging me a day it's like a dozen so like it's not like you're like who slid in today (laughs) 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 and because it in it's essentially just a text messaging thread at that point yeah but then, of course, you get caught up in all the other things. It's like when you go to the grocery store, and all of a sudden you're at the checkout aisle and you start grabbing all these impulse purchases. Instagram is the impulse purchase of the social media world. Yeah. Because as soon as we go to it for one thing, or we just go to our phone in general, if you have Instagram on your phone, you start, oh, I'm going to go here. Oh, just for a second, I'm going to go here. Oh, what do they have to say? Oh, I'm going to check her story real quick. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Mm. Uh, what about my, oh, there's a message in my DMs. Uh, wait a minute. 45 minutes has passed What's now. happened? Yeah. What has happened? I'm in the Bermuda Triangle of social media. I'm careening from my DMs to the Instagram reels to the Instagram photos to the explore page. And I just get stuck in that Bermuda Triangle. Mm. And so Instagram can add value to people's lives. I'm not saying that it can, but it is certainly overrated for me. And just spending one week away from it. And I generally don't even have it on my phone, but I had it on my phone for a while because we were posting these reels and Mm -hmm. I didn't want to keep deleting it every time. But then I realized, oh, I can actually post straight from a desktop computer now as well. That didn't used to be a feature. And so now I can do that and I don't have to worry about having the app on my phone. It's much calmer without it. Professor Sean. Pro tip, uh, you can create a script in your browser to block the Explore page. So if you click on it, it's just blank. Oh, Oh, that's so no search box. Nothing. Decluttering the explore page. Do you guys ever do this? Like, like the other day I was um, expecting a text message from someone. So like I went to go check my text messages. But the first thing I did is I was like, oh, to go in, I'll go to Instagram first. And it's just and then I'm like, what am I doing? Like, I literally came here to check my text messages. And I've been on Instagram for now 10 minutes. And I haven't even checked my text messages yet. Right. Yeah. And you forget why you went to your phone in the first place. You you went there for some reason. Yeah. Not Instagram. (laughs) And then you ended up doing something completely different than your initial intention. Mm -hmm. And so it's a distraction. And it prevents us from doing the things that feel more meaningful to us. We were talking earlier about sitting in the chair, doing the writing without distractions. Instagram is an easy way to distract yourself. Imagine if every time, instead of going to Instagram, Every time you just wrote a sentence, mm. how that would accumulate over the course of one year or forget even writing. What if you just read a paragraph? You went to the Kindle app on your phone and I did this initially when I got rid of Instagram, I replaced where it was on my phone with the Kindle app. So as I impulsed for the app, I actually mm. would just open up Kindle and I would, oh, I'm already here. I might as well read a paragraph. Yeah, you can gain a lot of ground, by the way, paragraph at a time. 
that's that's a thing that's underrated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How far you can go reading one paragraph at a time, man. Hey, just a quick word about rating. Usually when we talk about things being overrated, there, there are three categories, right? There's overrated, there's underrated, and then we rarely speak about the third category, which is, I'll say, healthfully rated. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's easy for people to hear overrated as a synonym for hated. Mm. If we say something is overrated, that means we hate it. We think right. it's evil and you shouldn't do it. Overrated just means, you know what? There's some room for us to extricate ourselves from this thing. There's some room to not play it up so much, to not praise it so much, to not venerate it as if it's some great and holy thing. And to say that something is underrated isn't to say that it's the best ever. It's just, hey, there's some room to appreciate that a little bit more. And if something is healthfully rated, we mean, like all things, it is good when we have a relationship to it that moves us forward in a constructive manner. And so when I hear you say, you know, Instagram, it's overrated or, you know, Things like owning the physical copy of a book, it's overrated. I don't hear it's a bad thing and you should feel guilty if you value it, but rather be open to the possibility that there's room to venerate it a little bit less. Yeah. And there are so many things that we can benefit from doing that kind of exercise with looking at anything from this coffee cup to this pen. You know, is there room for me to venerate it less? Is there room for me to appreciate it more? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And this is all perspectival too. I mean, yeah. it, it's, you know, for, for Josh, it's books. Um, mm-hmm. I find the books very appropriately rated, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Right, for you. And, right. and it sounds exactly. like flippers, you also have them appropriately <laughs> there rated. There is a space for that too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I have two more things. I'll just go through them real quick. Vacation's totally overrated for me. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't like vacation. I really like the life that I have. And mm-hmm. so I don't feel the need to escape it. My life feels like a perpetual vacation in many ways. And Mm -hmm. I could not wait to get back and get to work. Work feels like a vacation to me, too. I was giddy when I started working again. But perhaps a vacation from that is a pause enough to really feel giddy about doing the work. Finally, Mm. one last overrated thing. Mm. Freebies. Mmm, tchotchkes. <laughs> yes, Ryan and I, back in our corporate days, we would entice potential customers to show up at our store or at a table, at a booth, whatever, by giving them a bunch of free junk. And essentially yeah. when I see it now, it's like whether it's like a koozie that holds your beer or Coca-Cola can, whatever it is, mm-hmm. or it's a pen that is worth about three cents or... Or a t-shirt with the company's name on it. Oh. It's amazing. Like, that was probably one of the most popular things. And at the time, I was like, oh, yeah, of course, it's free clothes. Yeah. But like hindsight, I'm like, they really wanted to represent that company, didn't they? <laughs> yeah. And I would be free without it. Yeah. And so maybe there's the little play on words there. I don't need your slap bracelet. I don't need your pen. I don't need your koozie. I don't need Hmm. the corporate branded things to complete me. In fact, they will incomplete me. They will only add the excess clutter to my Mm. life. Your freebies are not free because not only do they take up space in my home, but now I have to do something with it. You are now burdening me. So whenever I see the free stuff now, it's essentially like someone saying, here, you get rid of this for me. And as soon yeah. as I realize that, no, thank you. I'll let it go in advance by not picking it up. Yeah, the illusion of free. Free means either you're the product or you're the one that's paying for the product. Because that T-shirt I'm giving you with my company's name on it that you don't even want, 
That's something that you now have to take care of. Mm-hmm. Oh, but I'm just going to give it away. Okay. You got to decide who you're going to give it away to or what you're going to do with it. Right. But you're now investing your time and your energy and your intention and your resources around that thing. So anytime someone says, hey, you can have this for free, even though there's no price tag costs, I have to ask myself, well, what is this going to require of me? Because there is nothing that comes into my life that is free of demands on my time, energy and attention. Our stuff is not passive. That's right. Yeah. Economics 101, there's no such thing as a free lunch. I mean, that's just how it goes. And it's not, you know, monetarily, uh, it might be monetarily free, but yeah, there's your time or attention or there's something that you're going to have to get for it. Like that t-shirt, what's the cost of that? The cost is that you get to be a walking advertisement for that company. Mm. And that's what you're doing with your time. And and it's okay if you want to pay that price. Like there's nothing wrong with paying that price, but just be aware of the price that you do have to pay. Yeah, 100%. Alabama, I'm going to skip this next talk about it, but we'll save that for next week because, well, it's a special time in our lives. What time is it? Oh, I've been waiting for this. It's time for TK's Tweet of the Week. (laughs) (laughs) TK, what do you got for us today? This comes from Billy Chapata at I-M-B-R-I-L-L-Y-A-N-T. All right, here we go. TK's Tweet of the Week, courtesy of Billy Chapata. Sometimes the emptiness you feel is just your spirit telling you to come back home to yourself, telling you to commit more time to you, telling you to find melodies that your heart enjoys beating to again, telling you to stop leaving love for yourself unattended. We've been talking a lot about emptiness recently on this podcast and trying to reframe, give some perspective here. And I like this is additional perspective because quite often the emptiness that we experience is not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. We've been sold a meme that says we need to fill the void. Yeah, You're feeling empty. But of course, empty isn't a bad thing. In fact, you look at the room here around us, it's relatively empty. It's not completely empty. It has everything that we need. We're not going without. And I think what happens quite often is we confuse that open space with going without. What happens when you buy a 4,000 square foot home? You feel compelled to fill every corner, every nook, every cranny with stuff. Mm. Nothing wrong with the things, but anytime we're buying something just to fill an empty space, It's actually saying something about what's going on inside us. Mm -hmm. I feel incomplete. And this incomplete home is Mm -hmm. merely an extension of Mm -hmm. my own incompleteness. Mm -hmm. No, you are complete in an empty room, in an empty home. And you can fill the space with things that enhance your life, that magnify Mm -hmm. your life, that amplify your life, that add value to your life. But if you're compelled just because an advertiser or a peer or society told you that you have an empty house and you got to fill it with stuff, well, you're going to keep feeling empty. The stuff mm. will merely widen the void now. Mm. Yeah. It, that clutter, the void is filled with excess stuff, excess books, excess relationships, excess obligations, excess things in our lives that don't complete us. If anything, they incomplete us. Let's go back to the tweet itself. Mm. Will you read the first line one more time? 
Sometimes the emptiness you feel is just your spirit telling you to come back home to yourself. Mm. Isn't it interesting? Like that empty feeling, I think everyone gets it at a certain point. And it's so hard to, for me to decide whether or not it's a legitimate empty feeling or um, if, if it's uh, something that I need to embrace. So what I mean by the legit, legitimacy of it is, is there something that I'm missing in my life right now? So when I start to feel empty like that, I look at, um, I, I look at my values and I'm like, okay, what do I value? You know, here, here are the foundational values that I have. And I kind of look at each one and I'm like, how am I doing in these areas? And, you know, you can kind of look at them like, uh, you know, buckets of sand or water in like the least empty bucket. That might be something that I want to focus on. But sometimes I look at those areas yeah. and I'm like, no, I'm doing pretty good on these. Like, I don't know why I got this empty feeling. And that, you know, after looking at those foundational values, I can give myself permission to kind of just embrace the emptiness. I've been reading a lot about um, uh, the Sedona Method mm -hmm. recently. And man, like that is such a powerful book on helping you embrace and even let go of, of some of these emotions. And emptiness is one of those. Like it's, it's, it's again, like sometimes it's legitimate and you got to look at something. Other times you're just having a little empty feeling and that's okay. Like I, I like to make friends with the void when I can. You know? mm. I think the void mm. is only a void when we've actually done something to, in our own lives to create the void. Mm. I, I mm. don't know that it exists outside of that. And what I mean by that is you'll feel empty if you have a ton of debt. And it's really pressuring you, right? Because now you're tethered to a lifestyle that creates a particular emptiness, mm -hmm. right? Or when I was mm -hmm. obese, there was an emptiness there. Like I, I felt devoid of health. Health is the default state. Health is simply an absence of disease or dysfunction, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so the default state is not empty. And I think that applies to all the areas in our lives. Mm. The house is not empty either, right? It is spacious. Mm. And then I can fill it with things that merely add value to my house, to my home, to my friends, to my community. Yeah. It's interesting when you say that we can't achieve fulfillment by filling our house with things. And I would say, and that's also true with respect to emptying our house of things. You can have an empty home and an empty soul. Mm. Because as we often say, minimalism isn't about the absence of things, but about the presence of meaning and intentionality mm -hmm. in our engagement with all things. And so sometimes in our efforts to please others and our efforts to acquire fulfillment, we give away our time or we give away our stuff. But because we are giving without intentionality, we also give away our boundaries. Yeah. And when we give away our boundaries, we give away our health, we give away our sanity. And that underlying sensation of emptiness is the soul's way of whispering to us, please come back. In your effort to get people to like you, you have lost the very essence of you. Mm -hmm. And there is no longer a me that even gets to enjoy the experience when other people like me. What good is it to be liked when you aren't even there? to appreciate the experience of being liked because you gave away your essence, you gave away your authenticity, you gave away your health and your sanity. And that's what I love about Brother Billy's tweet. He's telling us, don't run from that emptiness. Don't condemn yourself for that, for that emptiness. Don't avoid it. Listen to it. Let it teach you. Mm -hmm. Let it call you back home to yourself. 
and to your health and to your wellness, to your self-care. That's beautiful. Let's move on to an obsolete object we have here. Malabem, what do you got for us? This week's obsolete object comes from Ellie. She says, vitamin supplements have become obsolete for me. I know vitamins are something completely essential for our bodies to function properly and can be found in what we eat, especially if you're eating a relatively balanced variety of food. And yet the vitamin industry is close to $300 billion, billion with a B. Please don't get me wrong. Vitamin pills are not inherently bad. And for people who have an actual deficiency, they can be extremely helpful in living a better life. But the industry seems less about these specific incidents and more about painting a picture that we cannot be whole without them. Like much of marketing, they have taken something very good and useful and turned it into a message about who you are and who you could become if you just used their product. I used to wake up and take a literal handful of pills, fish oil, biotin, multivitamin, D, C, B, calcium, iron, etc. And then one day I ran out and I didn't purchase them again. And I haven't felt any different. I may buy them again in the future, but it will be with a different intentionality than I did in the past. Mm. This is a symptom of our mindset. I can take the pill, quite literally in this case, in order to circumvent the living well. Yeah. Whereas the intention of a supplement is literally that. It's in the name. It's to supplement, meaning, hey, I'm unable to get this nutrient in my diet. But don't we do this with our stuff as well? Our things also become supplemental. We have entire bookshelves and they become supplemental books. What are they supplementing? Your personality, Mm. your drive, Mm. your success, your knowledge, your information, your wisdom. We're Hmm. supplementing with all of these things that are not nutrient dense. Maybe. Hmm. In fact, there's even a term hypervitaminosis where you overdose on vitamins and so you can take too much of a thing that is meant to support you to serve you and it becomes clutter and it leads to dis-ease and so we have to be careful about what we supplement with nothing wrong as uh, what was her name Ellie. ellie as ellie said there's nothing wrong inherently with supplements or supplementation But when we treat it as the primary thing, that means that the diet we're experiencing, that we're we're consuming, or the things that we're consuming, if we bring this out more broadly, is devoid of the nutrients that we need in order to live the life we want to live. Mm. One of the things I'm getting out of this um, uh, observation here is... is, uh, the role of societal games and how we have the freedom to opt in and out of those societal games and how that liberates us from having to be involved in prescription wars. You should do this. You shouldn't do that. Right. Mm. When I say societal games, I don't mean that pejoratively like a game is something bad, but I just mean something that we make up, something that we collectively agree on for the sake of either having fun imparting some shared value or exchanging, you know, value or whatever it may be. But it's something that we collectively make up. And the first rule of a game is that you can opt out at any time. Yes. Right. A game isn't something that you have to play. You can say, Mm -hmm. you know, this game isn't for me. You all keep on playing, have as much fun as you need, but I'm going to opt out and go create my my own game or join a different game. And it sounds like you've opted out of the vitamin game. And I Mm -hmm. love that you're able to say, 
it helps so many people. And I celebrate that fact, but I don't force myself to keep practicing it just because there's an argument that can be made for how it can be useful in some context. Mm-hmm. And that's really freedom. When you can listen to the positive arguments that can be made for something and respect it and still say, but it's not for me and I can enjoy my liberty without condemning those who still indulge, mm-hmm. man, that's freedom right there. Yeah, not falling into the trap of what everyone else is doing. Yeah. It's funny because they're called supplements, like you said, Josh, because it supplements living well. And supplements typically are not as good as the, 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 real, the real thing. Right, and there's a few reasons for that. Right. So, um, yeah, so it's, yeah, the, 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 the supplement game could be very easy to get trapped in because we feel like it's going to be just as good as if we, you know, did, did better with our diet. Well, we can just take these supplements and that'll fix it. But like, well, the vitamin D, for example, a supplement of vitamin D is better than no vitamin D at all. Mm-hmm. But nothing is better than like getting your vitamin D from the sun. That's right. So, um, yeah, sometimes you need these things. Um, but yeah, it's, it's not, supplements are not going to supplement a meaningful life for yourself. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. They're not going to stand in for the real nutrition of living well. Yeah. yeah. Not, Alabama, yeah. we're going to skip the, uh, the sucky ad. Let's save this for next week. By the way, if you have any sucky ads or any obsolete objects for us, you can email them to podcast at the minimalists.com. It is time for our photo Friday home tour. This is number 22 in our series. You can find all of these photos every Friday. If you subscribe to the video version of the podcast, Mm -hmm. we send out a photo of one of our homes. You get to take a step inside. This week, of course, we are going to look at my home. This is my home office since we're talking about books here. Now, Ryan knows that I gave away my, I sold one. I gave one to him, my book towers that I had. Yeah. Because they were perfect in my last home. They were in the apartment that I lived in, in mm-hmm. LA. They were great there, but they didn't fit the new space. Mm. And so I could cling to it, just like I can cling to all the books that were on it. I can cling to the things that served me in the past, even if they don't serve me now. Mm-hmm. Mm. And if I cling, I'm going to get dragged, right? Yeah. And so I decided to let go. I sold one of them. I gave one to Ryan. It works really well in his home. Yeah, it looks great. As you saw last week on the home tour photo, you can take a look at that. Well, here's my office now. And it's, uh, this is my boundary. I have a small, I think it's called the shoestring bookshelf. It's just <laughs> a, you know, it holds, it's like four little shelves. Yeah. And it holds every book that Bex and I own together. And if one of us wants a new book, not a problem. We just have to get rid of one of the books that's on this shelf because I don't have any more space for books and I'm not going to let them start piling up on all the flat surfaces throughout my house and everything else. We have a couple decorative books like coffee table books as well. But with these, these are the books that I actually reference that I actually read or on deck that uh, I am going to read. I have no problem with letting go of any of these. The key is uh, that top shelf is all David Foster Wallace books. <laughs> the key is, do I actually reference them? Do I read them? Do I plan on reading them? And if not, then I give myself permission to let go, to not pile the books up beyond the boundaries that I've set up for myself. R- looks like, oh, go ahead. no, 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 you got it. Oh, got it. Uh, yeah, no, it looks like you got room for a couple more books, man. Looks like the, uh, mm-hmm. you got a little boundary left over. Oh yeah, that second shelf? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a little room. I feel so empty. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it because it just shows that like you don't have to fill it all. That's right. But if you yeah. wanted to, you could. 
Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so let's say the bookshelf is full and uh, you're in a bookstore and you, uh, you you wouldn't even go in. So I, I anticipate that objection. But uh, no, he loves going into bookstores. Okay. I really enjoy books. Okay, okay yeah. cool, cool. So you're in a bookstore and you see like the secret hidden collection of David Foster Wallace and there's a book you didn't know about uh-huh. and you look, the first sentence is like the dopest first sentence ever. And you really want this book. Do you have to throw something else out in order to bring it home? I won't throw it out, but I will donate it. Yeah. Well, you got you got to get rid of something. Yeah. It's yeah. the so in our minimalist rule book, which people can download, uh, theminimalists.com slash rule book, we have uh, a rule called the one in ten out rule. <laughs> <laughs> and so this is for people who are decluttering. Now it doesn't work in perpetuity because eventually you end up with <laughs> negative items. But anytime if you have excess stuff and you're struggling with getting rid of it and you still want to bring new things into your life because you're open to new experiences, right? Anytime you bring home a new shirt, you have to get rid of 10 of them. Anytime mm. you bring home a new book, you have to get rid of 10 of them. Mm. For me, it's essentially the one in, one out rule at this point, right? Because I've gotten my, quote, collection down to a place where I feel comfortable with that collection. And so, however, if there's something else that I want to bring in, I'm willing to let something else go if this thing trumps that. Because it's not about, oh, I can only get rid of the things that are in the way, but it's also about getting rid of things that are still valuable to make room for things that I perceive to be more valuable for my life. Mm. You convinced me to give up my home and move into a library. (laughs) (laughs) I have a non-book question for this home tour. Okay. I noticed that your guitar does not have a stand. Mm -hmm. That gives me anxiety. (laughs) And I'm just curious about Mm. that. Do you just set it up against the wall? You're not worried about bumping it with your chair or mm. anything? What, what, what What's behind that? What's the worst thing that could happen? I guess it falls over and just bursts into flames. <laughs> it's not <laughs> combustible. <laughs> I mean, if there's a candle next to That's it. That's the worst and, thing. I mean. And I held it over the candle for a little bit. Hey, no, that um, is how we imagine this. No, stuff, the, the worst the worst case scenario is yeah, you fall, it falls, like it gets some bumps like and dings. Snaps. Um the worst thing about leaning it against the wall is like the neck could get could get warped a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, you're right. I mean it's you're right in the sense of uh you being willing to walk away from any of your possessions, let alone anything outside of that. Yeah, I was going to hang it on the wall. I used to hang it on the wall, but uh there just wasn't room for it. And so right now it's just it's right there, it's and I chilling. pick it up and play it from time to time, mm-hmm. and and that's that. I mean, it's not it's not a possession where I'm like, oh my god, this is so precious. I really mm-hmm. like the guitar, and uh, although if it combusted or fell over, I'd be fine. It's fine. I bought a crappy guitar, yeah. so I didn't have to worry about it falling over and busting. There you go. I like <laughs> that it's as accessible as all of those books that you reference. It's <laughs> right there. The, what Josh was setting you up for is when he said, what's the worst thing that happened? You said it falls over and bursts into flames. Mm-hmm. He then would say, I walk up to it and pick it up and I play the like flame and get out. Yeah, that's right. Like and Hendrix. then the, the hair goes on fire. Yeah. <laughs> Let's check back in with the Patreon live stream. What do you got for us, Alabama? <laughs> we got a question here from Catherine. She says, I just got a Kindle and I'm wondering if any of you own one and are subscribed to Kindle Unlimited or Prime Reading. If so, what's your experience with it? I still own and prefer physical books, but I want to make sure I'm avoiding unnecessary subscriptions. Mm. Professor, I know you just got a new Kindle. Which one did you get? I got the Kindle Scribe. So it um, Mm. comes with a stylus. 
Um, and I can speak to this question. We, Mallory and I talked about Libby a few months ago, mm-hmm. where you can uh, download eBooks from the library and you can send those to your Kindle. And then with this Kindle scribe, I can take handwritten notes on my library books. Mm. And before I return the book, I just email all the notes to myself as a PDF. Mm. Wow. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, that's great. I, I tend to read books for pleasure now, mostly. And so I, I rarely underline them. But I find that when I use a Kindle, I'm often highlighting lines. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, what's weird, though, if I'm reading too much on a Kindle, as I pull out a book and start reading, I try to like highlight a word to get the definition and I realize it's not working. <laughs> like my damn book's oh, yeah. broken. Yeah. I can't. <laughs> oh, yeah. Why I, won't it give me the definition? Trying to zoom in. I tried to do that last night. That's I'm hilarious. reading a print book at the moment. And uh, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I've done that for sure. Just zooming in on the picture. I literally been like, oh, what are you doing? <laughs> I do own a Kindle. Uh, however, I use mostly the Kindle app on my phone, mm. especially if I'm traveling. That way I don't have to carry other books with me. I can just have that app right there on my phone and um, put the phone in airplane mode and I can just read, read, read. I can highlight what I want to highlight. Yeah. And uh, I do enjoy that. I do tend to prefer when I read, I read every morning and every night. I will sit down and read for a bit. I prefer something about the physical book, but it doesn't have to be. It's weird because I mm-hmm. prefer physical books like 6040. There's so much to recommend about a Kindle. Being able to highlight a word and get the definition, awesome. Being able to highlight sentences and save that for later and so you can go back and look at all of your highlights, awesome. Except the truth is I rarely go back and look at all my highlights. Yeah. Other people might go back and look at theirs, and so I think it'd be even more beneficial for them. But the, the book, there's something about the lack of distraction right here. If I sit here on the couch with a book and read for half an hour, just right there, me and the book, and nothing else calling me, especially as I keep my phone in the entryway. So I don't have my phone constantly dinging or interrupting me. It's just mm-hmm. me and the book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What about the unlimited? You guys subscribe? Kindle mm-hmm. Unlimited? No. No, I, you know, it's funny. I'm real. I have a Kindle and I'm realizing I need to get rid of it. I've, I have definitely have not used it in the last 90 days. Mm-hmm. I probably won't use it in the next 90 days because I do mostly audible. And then when the thing is, is when I get a really good audio book, mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, like I wish I had the book book so I could highlight some of this stuff. Mm. And uh, I will order the book book and then I'll read it again. And I will hi- highlight the stuff that I wanted to highlight. But with the Kindle, because I have that app on my phone. Mm-hmm. If I'm reading from the Kindle, it's usually off of my phone. Mm-hmm. So if anyone's looking for a Kindle here in the studio, you let me know. I got you. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, the uh, um, I, I don't do the unlimited, but I think Prof does. I just got free three months of it with this new Kindle, and it's underwhelming. Use the library. Mm. <laughs> yeah, so the, the Libby app better. instead. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good to, Good to know. know. Yeah. Let's do one more from the Patreon live stream. We have one more here from Lisa. She says, I'm writing a novel memoir, and it's actually started from an essay that I wrote in the How to Write Better class. This will be my first time writing a novel. Any thoughts on keeping the confidence and momentum going? Yeah, the the question is, does this, does this warrant a novel, right? Mm. Because otherwise it could be a short story. It can be an essay. I mean, it can be whatever you want it to be, right? Mm-hmm. I don't want you to keep going for the sake of keeping going. You never stop, keep going, plow forward. Yeah. Well, no, like if I tried to turn 
Love People Use Things, which is 80,000 or 90,000 words into a million words. How do I keep going? How do I turn this into a million words, right? Well, that's bloated. It's too long, Mm, right? right? Whereas if you feel compelled to keep going, Mm. then the key is merely sitting in the chair and doing it every single day. Because Mm. as soon as you start doing it, you actually won't want to stop doing it. Yeah. The question I often face when I'm writing and it's going well isn't how do I keep going, is how do I stop? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I need to be able to do something else with my life besides only write. And so if it's compelling, as soon as you get past that initial, that dip, as Seth Godin would call it, that's where all of the, uh, the fun, the play, the joy, the enthusiasm resides right on the other side of that little bit of drudgery. Yeah. Yeah. I love the idea of starting with like a blog post and then being like, oh, okay, can I turn this into an essay? Mm-hmm. And then after the essay, it's like, oh, can I turn this into a book? But almost like, you know, having that constraint, um, it will, yeah. What, what do we say? Uh, constraint breeds creativity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that the hardest part about creating is starting, which is where most creative projects and artistic dreams go to die. And then the second most difficult is stopping. Stopping is very difficult because there's no objective, you know, parameter. There's no objective, you know, means of knowing because you have to make it up. That's what separates art from science, right? Mm -hmm. Like you have to make up the starting point because it's something that you're creating. And not only that, but you can always keep going. There's always an extra edit that can be made. There's always an extra word, an extra bit of clarification. And so it's arbitrary. Mm -hmm. Like you just got to decide, I'm going to stop here. So I I would recommend just trusting yourself enough to know that there is a stopping point and that when you arrive at that stopping point, even though there is more that could be said, more that could be done, it's good enough. Mm. It takes me back to that Helen Gardner quote. A story is a chunk of life with a bend in it. Mm. Yeah. And so as you're doing this, find that bend. The bend is something that's compelling. Yeah. The struggles, the discontent, the times in life or in the story that there was tension, agony, pain, suffering. That's the bend of life. Mm. And if you can find that bend, the story will be compelling enough to you to keep going. Mm. But also, ultimately, it's going to be compelling to the people who are going to read it in the future. You got to find that bend. Let's move on to our added value segment. We got an email from Janine. Alabama, you want to read this? Sure thing. Here's what Janine's email said. Love your podcast, but the last few episodes have me questioning your message that advertising sucks. I have heard at least three instances where particular products have been promoted supposedly because it fits in with the topic which is being discussed. Sorry, I think this is a bit disingenuous. A promo shout out is an advertisement, period. I never heard you guys doing this before. So is this a business driven decision? As I said, I like your podcast, but please call a spade a spade. <laughs> hey, wait, can I, can I just say one thing first? Please. Sure. Hey, thank you for uh, expressing how you feel honestly, because you know yeah. what I really hate? It's not disagreement. What I really hate is like, um, let's say I'm talking to somebody about something and then they let me get away with something I said that they thought was BS. And then when I'm long gone, they're like, yeah, I think what he said was BS, but I didn't really want to take him to task. No, take me to task. Yes, absolutely. Give me the opportunity to speak to the objection because 
if I am guilty of BS, I want to know. I might evaluate what's being said and say, oh, you know what? I changed my mind. I've literally done that on this very show. Mm -hmm. But also, if my view happens to be more nuanced than what I have presented it to be in the past, Mm -hmm. I can improve my communication and add some clarification. So seriously, in a world where people are so afraid of debate and disagreement, in a world where we define disagreement as toxicity, just thank you for disagreeing, for calling us out and saying that we're being disingenuous. I appreciate that. I really do. Because it gives us the opportunity to have some meaningful dialogue. All right. So yeah. I just wanted to preface no, with that. Yeah. No, what I like about that too is, you know, if, if Janine's feeling this way, I guarantee you there's someone else feeling this way. Yeah, yeah, oh, for yeah. sure. So, so yeah, I mean, calling it to surface to, for yeah. us to talk about, I think is, yeah, it's very valuable for us. It's valuable for our listeners. Yeah. But, but the one thing I'll say is with Janine's comment is like, her perspective is her perspective. And I don't want to persuade her or convince her of anything. Sure. Um, so, you know, t- to Janine's, you know, email, I would say, yeah, thank you very much for your observation. I disagree with you, but thank you for your observation. I, I appreciate it. Yeah. The, the only part that troubles me about this is we often use conversation terminating cliches. Right. And that's the problem that I have with a comment like a promo shout out is an advertisement, period. Right. It, that doesn't that doesn't help the conversation. Right. If I were to say, Ryan. The earth is flat, period. Right. Well, I wasn't convinced until you said period. (laughs) Like now, yeah, like now there's no room for a conversation. Right. And so if we're going to have a conversation about this, we have to do it in a way where we're Mm -hmm. open to it. Right. And I can tell you that we don't do advertisements on this podcast. I'll I'll show you my response to Janine before I get to our Mm -hmm. actual added value segment. Mm -hmm. Here's what I what I said to her. I said, it sounds like there's just a simple misunderstanding. Advertisements are paid announcements via a public medium. Accordingly, we don't do ads ever, which means we can openly discuss products, experiences, music, and movies that we enjoy without being compromised by corporate influence. You can read more about our thoughts on advertisements at theminimalists.com slash ads. And I link to an essay we have there. It's like a mm-hmm. 10,000 word essay about advertisements. Mm-hmm. This is not, however, the first time we've talked about things that add value to our lives. In fact, we always have. You can go all the way back to episode 001 to see that the spirit of our added value segment has always been simple. Even though we are minimalists, we are not ascetics, and thus we still get value from some material possessions. The key is locating the things that amplify or enhance our lives while removing the rest. If something adds value to us, we talk about it during the appropriately named added value segment. <laughs> these, mission, these mentions are not ads. Heck, they aren't even recommendations because, as we always say, just because we get value from something, that doesn't mean that you will get value from it too. Right. And I want to be clear about that. What we're talking about during the added value segment is to really prove that, hey, we're not ascetics. There are things. And today I'm going to talk about a product that's a book, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. That adds value to my life. But if if I talk about anything, whether it's my belt or the clippers that TK uses to trim his head, mm-hmm. it's because we get value from that thing. And it's not saying you should get it because you too will get value from it. Mm-hmm. And it's not these corporations mm. paying us to talk about. It. Not that I think that's evil, but I do have 
a problem with that because it clutters a podcast. Yeah. Many of my favorite podcasts are cluttered with a bunch of corporate advertisements. And so what I do is I pay to get those ads gone whenever I can, right? Yeah. I pay for the premium version that is not ad supported. Or now Netflix is apparently going to be doing advertisements on their service as oh, well. Wow. And if I subscribe to Netflix, then I would get the version without the advertisements. I would rather pay slightly more to avoid ads. However, if I'm listening to a podcast by one of my favorite creators, whether it is Joe Budden or Joe Rogan, <laughs> right? I would much rather hear about something that they get value from. Now, I can't necessarily trust Joe Rogan for that because he does advertisements on his podcast, mm -hmm, right? Yeah. However, if I listen to Rob Bell or Sam Harris, who don't do advertisements on their podcast, and then they talk about the new Beastie Boys book that just came out, I can believe that that is not some sort of corporation infiltrating the airwaves. It is something they genuinely get value from. And I may or may not, but if I know that my tastes are similar to those creators, then I can trust that it might be worth my time. If they get value from it, so might I. Yeah. No guarantees there. Absolutely. Yeah. And it is tempting from a business standpoint. I mean, there's a certain product that I'll mention from time, you know, time and time again. And like, I got an email where they're like, hey, every time you mention this, you know, we get this uptick in visits to, you know, this particular thing. Um, would you ever consider doing like a, you know, paid sponsorship or something? And I'm like, well, I, I will happily talk about your product um, because it really does add value to my life, but I don't want to have to talk about it. Mm. So um, appreciate the offer, but no, we don't do paid um, sponsorships, but I will 100% continue to, you know, talk about your product because it, it adds value. And that, I love that, how it is a, it's a genuine recommendation. It's not, it's not phony. It's, you know, it's not crony. It is um, a genuine recommendation. And I like that with Rob Bell or with, with Sam Harris, there's two men that I really look up to. And I want to look at their recommendations as genuine, not like they're being paid to recommend something. Yeah. This is a topic that has come up many times since I've joined. And it's probably going to come up many more times because there's a more fundamental issue at stake here than just, you know, do we do advertisements? It's really something that's present in almost all disagreements and debates. And it is the difference in how we use and understand words. The English language is such that most of our words happen to have more than one meaning, depending on context and so on. And when it comes to advertising, it's very easy to say, look, this is just what the definition of an advertisement is. And you're doing that. Game over, right? And when I have discussions on disagreements, something that I try to do is I try to say, hey, look, I'm not here to tell you what you ought to mean by your use of the terms. I am not here to um, have you tell me what I ought to mean. I just want to understand. So if you're using a word in a way that is unorthodox or even unsupported by the dictionary itself, completely divorced from the etymology of the term, I don't care. I just want to know what you mean when you use it. Yes. Mm -hmm. because, What's the essence? Yeah. Yes, because I can only know if a position is consistent or inconsistent by virtue of it contradicting or failing to contradict what you mean by it. Right. Yeah. What makes a hypocrite a hypocrite is that they contradict their own definitions. A hypocrite isn't a hypocrite because they contra contradict mine. 
-hmm. If that were the case, all of you would be hypocrites because I could say, well, hey, nope, this is what communist means. You're a communist. This is what capitalist means. You're a capitalist, period, Mm -hmm. right? I could just define everything I want into existence and make everyone a hypocrite by attributing my definitions to your words. But what makes you a hypocrite is when you contradict your own definition. So Mm -hmm. now that I understand what you mean by advertisement, I say, that's necessarily true. If that's the definition of advertisement that we go with, mm-hmm. we are hypocrites, sure. right? Based on that definition, there's nothing to debate because the word has been defined in such a way that it accurately describes what we do and we say we don't do it. So mm. that means we're hypocrites, Yeah. I period. Say, yeah. H- however, the question to be asked is, is it possible that we're using it in a way that differs without saying you have to use it in our way? Mm. And the answer to that is yes. What we mean when we say we don't do advertisements is simply this and nothing more. We don't claim to have the one right definition. We don't accept a paycheck from any businesses out there to promote their product in exchange for giving them a say on how we do the show. When we show up, we talk about what we want to talk about in the way that we want to talk about it. And there is no corporate entity hovering around saying, hey, I need you guys to ease up on the jokes a little bit. Hey, I need TK to tone down the Christmas music a little bit. Mm-hmm. That, that's not consistent with the Tropicana brand. We don't do that. Whenever we talk about things, whether it's books, and I think from the first episode I've been on, I've been promoting books. I don't even believe in showing up without promoting, pushing, selling a book, mm-hmm. right? But we promote things because we believe in them, not because the creator of those things is giving us a paycheck to promote them in exchange for an opinion about how we produce the show. That's all we mean. And our behavior doesn't contradict what we mean by the word advertisement. But I do understand and I do empathize with what you mean. And I'm even willing to accept that maybe that's a more mainstream definition. And I'm okay with that. I just want to make it clear that what you have defined, perfectly okay to define, but that's not what we're doing. That's all. Yeah. 100%. I I would bring the hypocrite thing a little step further and say that we're all hypocrites to a certain degree. Every single one of us. The question is, how much of a hypocrite are you? Um, And that could be a whole different podcast conversation right there. But I stopped trying to be a hypocrite because, again, like I think when we get when we get down to it, one example is we're against slavery, but all the electronic devices we use, like if they're made by slaves Hmm. and we still use them, but all of us are against, you know, child slaves, but we are using products made that are, you know, made under those conditions. And and that's just one little tiny example. But, you know, the thing I'll say too, is I totally agree with your, the definition point of it, because, you know, like there's an article that'll say, Hey, minimalism doesn't work for poor people. And I'm like, Oh, that's interesting. Let me see what this perspective is. And then their definition of minimalism is getting rid of stuff. And that's it. Like arbitrarily getting rid of stuff. Just arbitrarily getting rid of stuff. And I'm like, Oh, I agree with you then. At that point, minimalism doesn't work for poor people. If that's how you look at it, like, yeah, like I can do nothing but agree with what you wrote. (laughs) Right. And you're not evil for saying that. It's just that, oh, we mean something different when we use the word. Right. So based on his definition, it's good for it. Based on that definition, it's bad for it. Mm -hmm. Which one are we going to use during this conversation just so we can know what the other is saying? That's what really matters. Absolutely. Yeah. And so if you're against us talking about things that add value to our life, then totally get it. And you prefer that we never, ever mention a product, we become ascetics, and that we shun all material possessions, then you're right. This segment 
is the antithesis of that. Mm. It's actually saying, here are some material possessions of some sort or an album or a movie, something like that, some sort of experience that I have found value in. That's where I'm going to pivot to today. We'll finish this episode with an added value segment. Um, New book that came out from Terrence Hayes called American Sonnets for My Past and Future Assassin. (laughs) And that's actually the title of every poem that's in this book, American Sonnet for My Past and Future Assassin. And I first stumbled across him because he has one of my favorite poems of all time. I only subscribe to one quarterly review. It is called The Paris Review. And it is a collection of fiction, like short stories, poems, art, interviews with authors. It is my favorite thing to read regularly. I read this most days. I'll just sit down. It's great because it's just this this platter of different things. Mm. And I will go from a short story to an interview with a poet, to an actual poem here. I'm going to read this poem. It's by Terrence Hayes. And it's called, I read this too. By the way, I sat down with Ella. She's nine. And I read this to her. And I could just see the confusion glazing over her (laughs) face at age nine. But she was intrigued. This one's called Bob Ross Paints Your Portrait. I'll put a link to this in the show notes. We'll also put a link to his new book, which is called American Sonnets for My Past and Future Assassin by Terrence Hayes. Bob Ross paints your portrait. Today, we're going to get to work on the details of your expression. And believe it or not, the only colors we're going to use will be blacker than most blacks. We'll use a black canvas and just a single finger instead of a brush. So let's take and dab the tip of a pointer finger into the black like so. And now we're going to cover everything between jawbone and temple, cheek and nostril, on both sides of the mouth, in black. You folks at home are welcome to use a thumb. Use a pinky or a pinky toe. I just want you to enjoy yourselves. Get the feel of the color until it suits you. And just gently tap, tap gently the color into the shape of a forehead. There we go. Maybe like we're touching a tiny tender button, gently dabbing and tapping the black in. There we go. We want it all to be approximately the same deep space black, black hole black, moving between our canvas and fingertip, gently, barely touching, tapping and touching layers of fingerprint until we have the look of a deeply textured black. Like so. Okay? (laughs) Now we're going to put some of the past and the background around your mind. All the way out to the edges of the canvas, where all kinds of things are happening. In the distance, maybe we'll place a mother and father, but we'll make them mostly visible in your expression. (laughs) Come on. It's good, man. What's so very nice about these black canvases is if there's light shining directly on them, they look completely different. It's it's almost like having two paintings inside of one. The night sky, the soil. Today, we we want it all to disappear and appear to disappear. 
Maybe there's a stretch of love that sort of graduates into nothing. Come on. Maybe there's nothing but waiting. We want to touch gently, enough to calm the longing, the boundless beauty bound in you. It's like debating whether water is bluish-green or greenish-blue before it blackens. Don't spend a lot of time worrying about it. We can begin applying some little black stars in the background without changing our technique very much. Wherever we picture stars, we can just touch the canvas like so. Mm-hmm. We can add black stars for eyes and black stars for scars. We want it as black as the space around the constellation. There we go. And maybe we want to take and add a little bit more of the past. It's happening all the time. Just enough to convey that we're, what we're trying to feel, the texture beneath the finger. Okay. Maybe one of your parents is in some way bigger than the other. Maybe one gives you your stinger and the other gives you your shell. So you'll have to work a little harder to forgive yourself. And we'll just lay in some of your favorite color, which is black, under the blackness. Lamp black and ink black, boot black and blackjack and blacker. Just gently tap. Tap, tapping. Now, I think I mentioned it earlier, but in case you missed it, if you have questions or comments or something I can help you with, please feel free to drop me a line. Lay in some blue black, ivory black, jet black, and blacker, gently tapping and touching. There we go. I would just love to hear from you. You have all kinds of beautiful depths and layers and shapes of black. Okay. Now we're going to handle your hair like a lovely coat of black feathers. Or it might be a black feather hat, a black feather wig, afro or cloud. We'll take our finger and just make little crosses across your crown. Folks trying this at home might want to make Big, bold, plus signs if you feel bold. Whatever you like. Feathers, the color of hair the night before it turns gray in the darkness. The color of sleep, or sadness, or escape. Absolutely no pressure. No pressure. Just the textures of touch. I can't shake the memory of a woman I loved poorly, curling her fingers as if pointing up at something inside herself when she showed me how she wished to be touched. There we go. If we pick up a little bit of the darkness under the color, that's okay. That's just fine. We want to pull the darkness out from the edge and blend it over the curve of your nose, following the curve of your speech, down into the onyx, the gunmetal, the black magic rabbit hole of a top hat over the mind kind of black. Oh, come on. Moving between canvas and finger like so. The only pressure is yours. Take your time. 
Soon, the darkness stands back from you a little. Can you feel yourself emerge as you fall backward? Wait till you hear what I've got planned for next week. Is who hurt you equal to who you hurt? Mm. Is who loves you equal to who you love? We'll start right there and move in the direction of desire. But right now, let's begin working on your shadows. Yeah, that's great, man. Man, oh, come on, Terrence I've, Hayes. I've never even heard of Terrence Hayes. That, but that makes right. me want to look more at Terrence Hayes. Mm. I mean, he he wrote um, this book, American Sonnets. Yeah. Uh, for my fast, uh, past and future assassin, and he is. I mean, it was like he wrote the whole thing sort of in the year or two years after Trump got elected, and he was mm-hmm. um, he was trying to deal with like his own prejudices in a way he's uh he's a black man a black poet Mm. and he i mean obviously i think it comes out in the writing there when he's talking about you know blackness as a as a metaphor there but also um there was something about the verisimilitude and the uh, versus the absurdness of the i mean the poem is is utterly absurd and surreal, right? Yes. It's Bob Ross painting an all-black painting with black stars as eyeballs, and we're yeah. going to fill in the shadows. And what I what I enjoyed about the poem as I read it, I've read it several times now, was he's painting a picture of someone painting a picture with metaphor. It's like a layer of metaphors in a way. Yeah. And just some of the lines, there's just these few little lines in here about your mother and father are different sizes. Or um, my favorite one is maybe there's a stretch of love that sort of graduates into nothing. And they're entire worlds. And I have something about poetry that can do this in a way that most prose can't. Yeah. And so the words that are here they're so open to interpretation. There's obviously no prescription here. And I don't know what he means, but it doesn't matter if I know what he means. What do I see in this art? Yeah. And that's a beautiful thing about poetry yeah. is it allows you to see what you want to see. It's similar to a painting in many respect. Yeah. Good art makes you feel something. And I felt a lot reading or listening to you read that poem. The, um, uh, I got jury duty. I love you, gentlemen, but I got to go. Well, he's got to get out of here. <laughs> well, hold on. I got just a, an outro real quick. <laughs> right, let's do it. That's our maximum episode for today. On behalf of Ryan Nicodemus, TK Coleman, Alabama Podcast Sean, Jordan No More, Professor Sean, Social Jess, Danny Unknown, Post-Production Peter, and the rest of our team. And shout out to Emma the Immigrant. We still love you, Emma. Love you. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn. If you leave here today with just one message, let it be this. Love people and use things the opposite never works thanks for being here y'all we'll see you next time peace every little thing you think that you need every little thing you think that you need every little thing that's just feeding your greed oh I bet that you'd be fine without it